Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Obviously, it's a little different, as you could tell by looking on screen right now. So this is, right. this is, I believe, only the second show out of, I don't even know how many we've done so far, where I'm not in studio physically with uh, Crystal. And this time, it's because we just did our trip to Austin, and I basically drove all around the U.S., and um, I, I got just a touch tired of driving 17,412 miles per week. So uh, that plus it's my, uh, my mother's birthday and I need to celebrate a little bit with her. So, um, it's a shame, you know, I, I gotta be honest. I prefer being in studio there with you, Crystal. It's, um, it's, it gives the show a much nicer feel. I obviously enjoy your company very much as well. So it's a little bit different. Um, but nonetheless, go ahead. If you're going to, I was just going to say, I do respect your commitment to your mom though. So it's fine. It's all good. I mean, it's all good. Only I get the glorious uh, uh, stone background, though, this week. So that's really that's your true. loss. But I have the beautiful map behind me, and it's multicolor. And so, listen, I'm not saying we should do a poll on it, but I sort of might edge out the stone just a touch. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, we still have a, a great show for everybody. I'm pretty excited about our show today. We will yeah, have Hassan sure. Piker coming on, and he is just a colossal left-wing Twitch streamer, and I've had the pleasure of watching him sort of uh, evolve and grow, and from when he started doing it to where he is now, it's been incredible to watch. Uh, but there's also quite a bit of stuff going on in the world that Crystal and I uh, have an eye for that we wanted to uh, discuss with you folks, for, for you folks. So, Andrew Yang, um, we just got the news the other night that Andrew Yang apparently was told by Dave Chappelle... His campaign was told by Dave Chappelle, hey, I'm willing to do free comedy shows for you in order to try to get out the vote. Now, regardless of what you think of Dave Chappelle, um, and I happen to like him and I think he's awesome, but he is one of the num one of the top comedians in the world, if not the top comedian in the world. The guy's sort of a living legend with how Chappelle show went and how he sort of walked out on all this money and just went to Africa. And so he is phenomenally popular out of this world popular. And apparently we heard that Andrew Yang's team basically said, no, he's too controversial. And I mean, this really gets to the heart of a big issue in politics, namely for a candidate like Andrew Yang, who was seen as this very authentic person. Um, and before I interject and give my opinion, is there anything, Crystal, that, that you think about that that you'd like to share with everybody? Well, I mean, of course, this all comes in the context of the New York City mayoral primary, which was this week, which um, they haven't finished tallying up all the ranked choice stuff. But it looks like just the worst candidate possible, Eric Adams, um, is set to win there, who ran this, you know, explicitly sort of like corporate and pro-police state campaign, but cloaked it in weaponized identity language. So any criticism of him was racist. Even he's taken this position of like defending tenant rights is somehow racist <laughs> and turns shilling for landlords into like a, you know, pro-minority stance. And um, Yang, I think both of us were pretty disappointed in the campaign that he ran uh, for mayor in general, because we got the sense, even in the conversation that we had with him on this podcast, that he was listening way too much to these political consultant types who, by the way, also noteworthy. I mean, these were like Michael Bloomberg's 
people and consultants. And it seemed like he just was relying way too heavily on them, like getting talking points for them, especially with regards to BDS and Israel-Palestine. So this is a perfect emblem of the type of ridiculously stupid advice that you will routinely get from the American political consultant class. Now, uh, to be clear, neither Crystal nor I endorsed Andrew Yang. There's a misconception out there that, you know, we, her or I or both of us oh, really? endorsed People Andrew Yang. Oh, really? People think that? Oh, yeah. It's, but even the way you just said it right there, like, oh, we were disappointed in the campaign. That makes it seem like we have a stake in the campaign. I have no stake in the campaign whatsoever. I don't live in New York City. I didn't vote in the election. If I was going to vote in the election, I probably wouldn't have put him first, especially after all that BDS bullshit. Um, so just to be clear up front, neither one of us endorsed him, but nonetheless, we had him on the podcast. There were things we said that, hey, we enjoy this about you, whether it's UBI or drug legalization or decriminalization or whatever. But there were also things we went after him pretty aggressively for, like on Medicare for All and like on BDS. But to your point, you know, I was talking about this the other day. So-called professional political strategists have ruined countless campaigns and uh, everybody has them anybody who runs for office has political strategists campaign strategists and you know if if i ever run for office or if any of you ever run for office let me give you a little piece of advice you should only have policy advisors and you should brag about the fact that you have zero strategists because they're totally useless they're conventional wisdom humpers I don't understand why you would pay somebody to tell you what they think other people believe and want to hear instead of just telling people what you believe. And so I do think Andrew Yang is like a, a case study in somebody who was viewed as authentic, somebody who was viewed as honest, somebody who had a huge lead because of that and because of name recognition, and then keep it real— because he was overcoached, because he was listening to too many voices, because he lost his core— his campaign ended up imploding. He came in fourth, Crystal. Fourth. I think right now he has, uh, in the, the first choice ranking, he got like 12% of the vote. I mean, basically all he ended up with essentially was the Orthodox Jewish community that he pandered so hard to um, in doing that. And I don't want to say it's just that, but essentially, like you said, losing his core and listening so much to these political consultants, he lost everybody else. And at the beginning of this race, he had a tremendous advantage because he had huge name ID. He had this kind of halo around him as being different and being kind of, you know, coming at things from a genuine perspective, whether you agreed with every solution or not, you felt like this guy's an optimist. He's really telling me what he actually thinks. And so he might be a different direction from the city. But then once he just collapsed down to a normal politician, why are you going to pick the normal politician who has no experience in city politics versus like a normal politician who does have experience in city politics? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that there's there's just a lot of lessons to be learned from here. What made people respond to him during his presidential primary primary run when, you know, nobody knew his name before. Media did everything to completely ignore him. And yet he was able to generate this like enthusiastic base that were super dedicated to him online. He was able to have an impact on the national conversation around direct cash aid and UBI. It was because people really had this like trust in him that he was just being straightforward and honest and his authentic self, even when that was like, you know, there were some cringy moments. There were some moments where you're like, are you really supposed to say that? 
But when he got up on stage at the debates and was like, this is all a game. We're up here wearing makeup. Like, this is all theater. That actually really spoke to people. And then when he went to run in the New York City mayor's race and actually was like, okay, now I'm going to win. This time I'm going to do it for real. And I've got the, the money and the backing. And what can we get done? And he brings in the political consultants. It just ruined everything that was ever, like, unique and interesting about him. And he paid the price of the polls. You know, uh this is going to sound like I'm being a dick, but I'm saying it because I think it's true. Politics is not that complicated. It's mm. really not. Like, when he was talking about UBI relentlessly, people were interested in him. Now, granted, he didn't do all that well in the presidential race, but listen, he came out of absolutely nowhere and was somehow early on in the conversation, which is, you know, amazing in and of itself. But if he only talked about UBI the same way that he did when he was running for president, he probably would have held on to that lead and he probably would have won. Instead... He was overcoached. We got we went from UBI to like TikTok hype houses or something like that to casinos to a people's bank, which is an idea that actually is a good idea. But to, you know, in the final days of the campaign, there was the story about he was saying things about um, homeless people that were really cringeworthy. And then he like sort of doubled down on those comments on homeless people. And one of the things that he liked doing throughout the campaign is just like going to random bodegas and random restaurants in New York City and he'd eat something and then he'd do sort of like an advertisement for the various restaurants. And um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I do think that the big thing, the biggest mess up was around BDS and was around the issue of Israel. I mean, he early on, everybody knew his position on circumcision. He basically said, listen, I'm against circumcision. I think it's genital mutilation. Um, and but hey, whatever, I'm in favor of everybody's freedom of choice to do whatever they want to do. However, this is what I think it is. I don't think circumcision is a good idea. And then you did get the sense, and you brought this up to his face, Crystal, that like everything that happened after that was just like a sad attempt to try to make up for the fact that he offended the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And so that's why you got these like super hardcore far-right-wing pro-Israeli statements. And even when they were, you know, bombing women and children in Gaza, he like came out in favor of the Israeli government. And it just, it all smelled so gross. It smelled so inauthentic. It smelled so overcoached. And eventually people saw through it. And the saddest part of it all, the psychopath ended up winning, you know? And by the way, before we get off this topic, I do want to ask you, um, what do you make of this narrative that, you know, everybody seems to think that the race was solely over policing now? What do you make of that I narrative? Mean, I just I think that's really simplistic. Look, I do think crime was an issue. There's rising crime in the city. It's a real quality of life and safety issue. And I think that people genuinely do care about that. And I think you have to speak to that in a way that's direct and not like high level and, and theoretical and philosophical, et cetera, et cetera. But look, Eric Adams knew what lane he wanted to run in. He relentlessly ran in that lane. He weaponized identity and race in a way that, frankly, the mainstream Democratic Party has made themselves vulnerable to by embracing that rhetoric without any additional content or any class content around it. So you can have a guy who's coming in and literally making the case for landlords and couching that in the language of anti-racism. And that's, you know, that's landing with a certain percentage. But also, it's not like the left even really had a candidate in this race, right? 
the left shot themselves in the face five different ways in this campaign to where the final last hope of the quote unquote left was Maya Wiley, who's known for like going on MSNBC and trashing Bernie Sanders. She's such a great denizen of the left. Um, so first you had Diane Morales, who's essentially exposed as a fraud. I mean, she was a Andrew Cuomo voter over Cynthia Nixon. She was a big charter school supporter. And she clearly decided to run as as a left wing candidate because she thought that was a lane that was available. Then her staff tries to unionize and they end up marching on her campaign. So that just sort of like, you know, completely imploded. You had Scott Stringer. Fake allegations, yeah. Yeah. So you have Scott Stringer, who is another like Hillary Clinton progressive, certainly not any representative of the Bernie left, but way better, let's be clear, than Eric Adams. And also on a personal note, when I ran for Congress back in 2010, on a personal level, he was very, very nice and kind to me at a time when not a lot of Democrats are particularly nice and kind to me. So I appreciate that on a personal level. Um, woman comes out, makes accusations against him of sexual harassment, sexual assault, accusations that now we learn she took to the New York Times. The New York Times could not corroborate and so did not run the story. She just goes ahead and does a press conference. The left, like organizations like Working Families Party and uh, people like Jamal Bowman and other like left leaders, uh, without doing any due diligence, just accept these claims at face value. Always. It's right. And like now ap- played like a fiddle. After the fact, Ryan Grimm does the reporting when it's already too late. A week, you know, not that long later, like a week later, he does the reporting saying there's this hole in the story. There's that hole in the story. There's this other inconsistency. We talked to the friends. We talked about the to the people around him. And does anyone know for sure what happened here? No. But does it line up more closely with Scott Stringer's side of the story than hers? Yes. And the context here is important, too, because this was at a time when Stringer was rising in the polls. It wasn't Eric Adams who was surging then Mm. to challenge Yang. It was Scott Stringer. Progressives were coalescing around him. He was rising in the polls. These allegations, which appear to potentially, maybe probably, be completely phony, completely derailed him. So then the last best hope is Maya Wiley. AOC endorses her. There's an attempt at the very end. She did outperform expectations and is in second in the first choice ranking. There's a very small outside choice chance that she could overcome Eric Adams, but looks highly unlikely. So I think this idea that it was just narrowly about crime and it was a rejection of the left and all of that is silly, especially when you look upstate, you see at Buffalo, they just elected a socialist mayor. When you look down at Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who's one of the top reformers, police reformers and uh, in the entire country, um, they thought they were going to be able to take him out. The police union backed a, a challenger to him, and he not only won, but dominated that race. So I just think I, I don't want to say that there's nothing to the narrative because I do think that crime ranks pretty high for New York City voters right now. And that's what they told pollsters. But to just say, oh, this is a rebuke of the left and this is about crime is 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 just silly and simplistic. Yeah, I mean, and, and I also just sort of reject this notion that the left is soft on crime. I mean, that's such Mm. like a caricature. So, you know, the way I would discuss it is when it comes to things that I don't think should be crimes, yeah, I'm going to be soft on those because they shouldn't be crimes. So like all nonviolent drug offenses, are you kidding me? Free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country, legalize tax and regulate drugs, at the very least decriminalize drugs. The whole point is, I don't think that's a crime, so it shouldn't be punished. But when you talk about things like murder or rape or assault or robbery, like, yeah, I'm tough on those crimes because I think they should be crimes. So, like, 
this notion that like, well, the left is just soft on crime as if, you know, anybody, somebody who's a lefty is like, well, my grandma was murdered, but since I'm soft on crime, I'm going to go ahead and let them, you know, get away with that. And, you know, it's totally fine. It's like, what are you talking about? So yes, I, I tend to agree with everything you said there. Um, now, Go ahead and tell me. There's this other story. Normally, this isn't our beat, but we were both fascinated by this. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on with Britney Spears. And, and okay. how do you say the word? Conservatorship? Conservatorship? Conservatorship. Um, so to be perfectly honest with you, it is my beat. Um, <laughs> I just don't talk about it that much publicly. I mean, look, I grew up with Britney. I love Britney. She's exactly my same age. And so I've been following all of this stuff. And Basically, since she had kind of a, you know, mental health challenge back in, I think it was 2008, her dad used that moment of breakdown, which is very common and totally understandable given the, you know, level of fame and scrutiny and all of the ways that we know that that screws people up. I mean, it's basically like capitalist exploitation, chewing up and spitting out these child stars. So she has this breakdown. Her dad uses it as an excuse to go to the court and take complete control of her life and her finances and everything. So there's been this whole free Britney, I guess you could call it kind of a movement, but interest from her fan base and like, what the hell is actually going on here? And for the first time, Britney spoke out in court in a 20 some minute monologue about the treatment that she has received under um, her you know, father's guidance of this conservatorship. It's truly horrific. I mean, I think it's worse even than the sort of worst case scenario of what we expected. She's really been kept as like a prisoner, um, forced to work when she didn't want to. Um, there's this, uh, as a mom, this part really, really got to me. They forced her to have an IUD and she wanted to take it out and have a baby and they wouldn't let her. I'll just read you this part of the testimony because it just shows you how like shocking and abhorrent this treatment was. She says, I would like to progressively move forward and I want to have the real deal. I want to be able to get married and have a baby. I was told right now in the conservatorship, I'm not able to get married or have a baby. I have an IUD inside of myself right now so I don't get pregnant. I wanted to take the IUD out so I could start trying to have another baby, but the so-called team won't let me go to the doctor to take it out because they don't want me to have children, any more children. So basically this is doing me way more harm than good. She also testified that they had drugged her with lith lithium that she didn't want to take. Um, they've, you know, she has no control over her own money. They forced her to work these shows in Vegas that she didn't want to do, just completely taken advantage of her. And here's the other piece that really is, is shocking. Her lawyer, which she did not pick, she did not have the ability to pick her own counsel, has been billing her $10,000 a week for all these years to the tune of millions of dollars and never even advised her of her basic rights to file a petition to end this conservatorship. So everyone around her, from her dad and her family to this lawyer who's supposedly representing her interests has been just sucking her dry, denying her just the very basic rights. And I know, Kyle, like a lot of people who may not be as into Britney as I am are like, whatever, she's a rich pop star who really cares. But it's a, a window into the way that people who have any sort of mental health struggles can be abused and manipulated and exploited. Like if it can happen to Britney Spears, who was America's princess, um, 
what do you think is happening to to normal people? So it, it really was pretty shocking to hear what she had to say. Why was it so easy to get the conservatorship in the first place? And now it seems like nearly impossible to get out of it because this is we're over a decade now, right? Like 13 yeah. years or something 13 with this. Years. Why is 13 it so years. hard? Why is it like why isn't it already the case that after the judge or whoever heard that testimony that they're like, OK, my decision's made. You're free. Yeah, well, and I don't know what will come. Maybe that is what's going to happen now. And uh, like not a legal expert, so I'm not sure. But when they took her rights, it's just been very hard for her to be able to to reclaim them. And I think part of it really maybe comes back to this lawyer that's supposedly her lawyer who seems to be sort of like in on the deal. He's getting a giant paycheck um, from her and didn't even tell her that she could file a petition to end the conservatorship. So, um, you know, one of the lines that her dad and his team have always used here is basically like, Brittany's never requested. She could file a petition with the court to end this, and she never has. Well, now we're learning she had never even been advised that that was a possibility. So I think that may be a big part of the story of why this has gone on as long as it has. So did she like the question I have is, did she not even like she was on a TV show not that long ago, like a hit thing as a judge? I don't know the name of it because I don't really follow all that oh, stuff closely. Yeah. And she's I done she a did, bunch of know. things. I don't. Did she not even want to do those things? Was she almost sort of forced every step along the way? Because I did see a documentary on this and they talked about how when she started her Vegas tour or whatever the fuck that they started the thing and she like walked out and then just kept walking and walked off. And it was like, basically it was a sign like, yeah, I'm here. I don't want to fucking be here. I don't want to fucking do this. Is it the case that like everything she's been doing for the past decade, she's basically like enslaved and doesn't want to do any of it. And she's just forced to do it all. Certainly seems to be what she's testifying to here. And in particular, she talks about the Vegas shows and that she was forced to work these long hours, seven days a week with absolutely no break. Um, she's also, you know, been denied access to be able to see her kids. She talks about, I mean, these just really basic things. She's like, I just want to be able to go for a drive with my boyfriend in his car and not allowed to do that. Where she goes, who she talks to, whether she's allowed to leave her house, no control over any of that or of her own money. So, um, yeah, it's it really looks like and again, this is what she testified to that all of the work that she's done over the past number of years, she's basically been forced um, against her will to do, which is I mean, again, look, you may not she's a rich pop star. And I'll, I saw a lot of people were like, who really cares? But I just think that it's a window into how cruel this system is and the way that how we is just she rich if she can't control people. her own money? How then is she, she rich? Right. How she 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 I'm sure she lives in a very nice place. Right. And uh, and so I guess that's the sentiment. But ultimately, yeah, she doesn't have control of any of her own money. She can't can't go on vacation, can't even go for a drive with her boyfriend in the car and forced to work against her will, enriching all the people around her, including her her dad. Um, but unable to like enjoy the fruits of her own labor. So it's a story about total like end stage capitalist exploitation of someone that, you know, should should have been one of the most successful pop teen stars in American history and has just been completely made miserable and effectively like enslaved by this system. We should get her on the podcast. Her dad oh my seems God. like a real that piece of amazing. shit. That yeah. would, oh my God, her dad seems, imagine doing that to your kid. Like, 
it's unconscionable, completely yeah. unconscionable. Yeah, well, not to make too much of an uh, abrupt transition here, but there's another story that caught your eye that you wanted to talk about, and I'll let yes. you handle it from here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, wait, did you read this story, Kyle? Um, no, I did not, actually. Okay, all right. So I'll break it down for you then. So sure. go ahead. Um, TNR had a profile on this guy whose name is Herb, E-R-B, Avor. Um, and Stop it. Uh, Unlike me, he was not given his weird-ass name. He chose that weird-ass name, whereas I was uh, forced into it by my parents, who I'm very great. I actually love it. So anyway, I've embraced it. Anyway, moving on from me. This guy was the king of the, like, male sex enhancement pills that they sell at gas stations. His brand was called Stiff Nights. And so um, TNR did this whole profile of him. And the reason I thought it was, first of all, it caught my interest because you and I had just been talking about these supplements. We read this book about like the patent medicine industry and the way that like the term snake oil salesman came to be and how these things are still, even all these years later, really, really loosely regulated. And it turns out there was actually a law that was passed under the Clinton administration, no surprise, that made it much easier to sell these supplements with next to no regulation where, you know, what they put as the ingredients on the bottle may be wildly different than what's actually in it, certainly not regulated the way that pharmaceuticals are. So coming into this story about this dude and his male sex enhancement pill empire, what I was kind of expecting was that it would be about what a charlatan he was, how the pills had absolutely no efficacy, like they don't work at all. It's all just, you know, a bunch of useless junk in the pills. But it actually, and that's why, you know, the government came after him is because it doesn't work whatsoever, but it actually was the opposite. In fact, I think my reading of it is if the pills were useless and didn't work, he actually would have been fine. The problem was that the pills actually had some ingredient in it that was an analog to the active ingredient of Viagra or Cialis. Yeah. So they actually really worked. And the government shut him down because if you have our actual pharmaceuticals in the pills, well, then you have to be properly regulated as a pharmaceutical. So they shut it all down. But this guy's such a character. He truly has a burning lifelong passion to find some kind of natural herb that will give men erections. Like this is his life mission. Even now, after he's shut down by the government and can't sell his uh, stiff nights anymore, he's still gone back to like, now he's traveling around Africa again and sampling all these different products to see if he can find what is effectively his white whale of that herbal ingredient that is gonna give you that dream boner of your life and so um yeah it was it was pretty pretty fascinating but one political part to take it out of the realm of erections and boners one political part that they talk about is just how few regulators they have for these supplements um so it's like you know the number of thousands of i'm trying to find here we go um the number of thousands of products that um, come through and how few regulators they have to actually evaluate them is insane. So while you talk, I'll find those numbers because they're in here. Yeah. Okay. So the first point is, 
I feel bad for this guy because the way that you get obsessed with that issue is to have the limpest dick in the world. So There's he no claims way. he doesn't have a problem. My by the way. ass just, cheeks. He I'm he doesn't just have a putting problem. it out there. His yeah, disclaimer: no. He says he has no issues. Go ahead. Not buying it. The dude hasn't had a boner since 1972. That's why he <laughs> keeps looking. I'm serious. That's why he keeps looking. Who the fuck else would be like? I have. He a wants real to help people. He's got a passion dick. for helping people, Kyle. I believe him. Oh, please. There already is a thing out there that works for that. So I but I want to find a different one. But he doesn't but trust that Big works. Pharma. That's the thing is he okay. doesn't trust Big well, Pharma. So that's where the passion listen, comes from. Anyway, go ahead. Yes, there's there's a lot of stuff to say about this. So you you brought up a book that we both read called The Attention Merchants. And in this book, there's a guy by the name of Samuel Hopkins Adams. And he looked at what was basically the early advertising industry. And there were endless wall-to-wall fake medicine supplements being sold. Now, at the time, people didn't really realize or know that these were fake supplements, so people would buy this stuff, and it was a multi-billion dollar industry. Guys, it was so ridiculous that some people, and I'm not kidding about this, they would sell immortality pills. They would say, if you take this, you will live forever, and totally unregulated insane wild wild west type type stuff so there was this guy who was effectively an investigative journalist muckraker i think that's what they called him muckraker um and he brought down this entire fake medicine industry and he did it because he did a series of 11 exposés where he tested all of the things that they say are these amazing medicines and basically none of them worked and in fact when he tested them on like pigs or something the pig he gave the pigs anthrax and then gave them the immortality pills and the immortality pills were supposed to make it so that wouldn't affect him they died in like a day like some people who took the pills actually died faster than the ones that didn't because the stuff that was in the pills were horrendous and terrible and he was able to prove all this stuff so this guy was able to bring down an entire industry but the media at the time was effectively siding with the fake medicine industry because they were the people who paid the media because they pay, they had ads in the papers at the time. So you go back in and you hear about this and you're like, this is fucking crazy. This guy's a hero. His name is Samuel Hopkins Adams. He's a hero. We never learn about him. We never hear about him. And effectively, what you're talking about right now, Crystal, is, is a similar type thing where we have a guy who actually came up with something that works, but it was like Big Pharma and the government in collusion – sort of push this thing down and and banned it because it might cut into the profits of big pharma. So in some ways, it's like the opposite thing as what happened with the attention merchants. But um, to be clear, the overwhelming majority of these unregulated supplements are complete and utter horseshit. And so this is a rare example of one that actually worked and one that was good. But, you know, I think if, if you do you have the numbers pulled up now on how few regulators there are and the yeah, stuff that's found. Yeah, I do. So yeah, just, just 29 workers track 80,000 supplement products. Another 22 import investigators check just 0.16% of the 275 million packages entering each year. Um, their best guess is that... 24,723,000 packages of illicit pharmaceuticals slipped through. 
Um, and here's the other thing about some of the some of what they're putting in these pills, um, because, again, it is kind of the opposite thing. The, yeah, I think if the pills just didn't work, they couldn't actually crack down on it. It would be legal. Um, and that's in part because of the Clinton administration. They put the burden of proof on the FDA. And you can use this language that, you know, is very sort of like as weaselly. long as the language is is general and weaselly enough, you can yeah. essentially get away with selling the pills that just don't work. The so problem was that your immune system. That's what they say. Instead of saying this will prevent you from getting X, Y or Z, they say it boosts yes. your immune system. Right. Well, and that's why they call these like male enhancement or sex enhancement right. or something rather They're than di like directly pills. saying right. that this is yeah. going to treat ED. Right. Um, but yeah, so um, they say in this piece, the ingredient listings on the labels are so much garbage. One sex enhancement pill brand seized by the FDA, FDA had 31 times the prescription dose of Tadalafil, I think is how you say it, the active ingredient in Cialis, and it had an antidepressant. Others had cocktails of as many as six different unapproved drugs or analogs. Others included dyes and filler like blue printer ink and drywall. And dietary supplements have been found to contain boric acid, floor wax, and rat poison. So you really have no idea what the hell you're getting here. Um, well, this but is yeah, it's, it's interesting that because it worked and because it actually had drugs in it, that was what allowed them to crack down more easily. Yeah, this is the same thing. There was a study that came out from the New York Attorney General, I believe. It was like probably in like 2015 or something like that. I remember covering it on Secular Talk. And um, they basically took these supplements, read the labels, and then tested what was actually in the pills. And in almost every single case, the thing that it said on the label wasn't in the pills. So it was like rice powder and all sorts of stuff. And the funny thing is, it's like even if the things had in the pills what it says on the bottle, even then a lot of this stuff doesn't work because there aren't efficient studies on the things that they say work. So even if it did have the stuff in there, it's an open question as to whether or not the stuff is going to work for what they pretend it works for. But it didn't even have the stuff in there. It had like rice powder and soy and like other shit. And this is what happens when you have a totally unregulated marketplace. You know, like this is what ends up happening is that these people are totally unscrupulous and they're just trying to make a buck and make it as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. And so in the overwhelming majority of cases, you're getting shit that doesn't work. It's very rare you find something that actually works. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking about the supplement stuff um, when you were talking to Rogan in your podcast, too, because he was telling you, like, you should supplement with this or that. And he's big into that whole thing. Like, is there any way to know? that this particular brand or this particular supplement actually has the shit that it's supposed to? Is there any well, way to know? Yeah, so like third-party testing, basically. You get an mm. independent group to test it, and you know you pay them so they're beholden to you and your interests. So you get a third-party group to test it. And also, you can it is possible to get like pharmaceutical-grade supplements, but they just have to actually be pharmaceutical-grade supplements. And the reason why those are better is because pharmaceutical-grade is regulated and tested. So, you know, listen, we're not, we're not fans of big pharma over here, but I've said it a million times, just because big pharma is corrupt and big pharma has bought the government and big pharma is terrible. Doesn't mean that antibiotics don't work. And doesn't right. mean that if you pop a Percocet after you get a surgery on your elbow, that you're not going to feel better. You're going to fucking feel better. So, you know, you just got to be objective about this stuff as much as possible. Yeah. Well, I was, I was also thinking about, I think we talked on here about hand sanitizer and how it has yes. like 
some shit in it that can give you cancer. Yep. <laughs> Again, it's like all this stuff. Or I also covered that the story about how baby food has high levels of all these different cadmium and mercury and arsenic and all of this like terrible toxic stuff in baby food that yeah. they just also like cook the books and look the other way on. Yeah, I saw your radar on that. That was phenomenal. And you're right. You're right about it. So um, I want to go ahead and bring in Hassan Piker now. I'm actually really excited for this. So he's a Twitch streamer. He's a political commentator. He previously worked uh, for TYT. He worked as a columnist for Huffington Post as well. He's currently one of the most viewed and most subscribed to Twitch streamers, which is amazing. Wow. Here's Hassan Piker. All right, Hassan Piker, pleasure to talk to you, man. There's so much stuff that I want to ask you. Um, so, first of all, talk to me a little bit about your political ideology, your political awakening. Like, when did that stuff happen? Where did it come from? I know for myself and for Crystal, most of it was like, probably the Iraq war was the biggest mm -hmm. thing in our formative years. What was it for yeah. you? Um, I mean, I'm Turkish, so I, I grew up on the other side of the Iraq war in many ways. Uh, so I saw I saw Islamophobia from America uh, all around the world uh, in the post 9-11 world as a young Muslim boy. I saw authoritarianism in Turkey growing the Erdogan regime. So I was always very uh, I was always very political. So my and very progressive, uh, I guess. Um, so I had a, a couple different like awakenings. I was a bit of a edgy r slash atheist like reddit atheist as i call it yep. uh, when i was Me a little too, bit buddy. younger i think it was like third grade that's when i went third through my grade. like uh, wow yeah that's yeah, impressive we had impressive. religion class yeah we had religion class but like they only taught islam and i was like why are you guys only teaching islam like this is supposed to be like about all religions i was just annoying i was an annoying little kid but that was like one of the first times where i started recognizing things i guess about organized religion my change my opinion on that has changed throughout the time obviously but uh the erdogan regime was super oppressive super conservative that didn't help uh very similar to donald trump in many respects and i got to see how uh encroaching an authoritarian regime could be on the life of a growing boy uh and then after that i came to america you know landed the free home of the brave uh, i was duped <laughs> by the capitalist marketing here. I thought this place was sick, you know what I mean? And then I realized like, oh my God, it's not so sick. You literally need to pay uh, an arm and a leg basically to go to the hospital. This is fucking nuts. So I think like anti-imperialism, anti-fascism, but then lastly, my journey towards uh, democratic socialism, I would say comes from our, uh, horrifying healthcare system here in the United States. Hmm. Well, and uh, speaking of which, it's very nice of you to invite Senator Sanders to uh, sit in on the podcast as well. Behind oh, yeah, you, so. back there. He's always watching. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, oh, wait, how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? Uh, I came to the United States when I was 18 years old. Gotcha. To go to college here. And so did you get in trouble when you were like that third grade kid being a pain in the ass in religion class like did you get in trouble for that what was the reaction in your from your te teachers like uh one of my teachers gave me a three out of five like the my religion teacher because he's just like hated me i think that contributed more to me being like a like an edgy atheist back then uh because i just uh, you know i feel like kids are always anarchists you know they're they have like a like a very anarchist slant so i i consider that to be an unjustifiable hierarchy 
and uh, yeah. I would, I would routinely just like duke it out with them or think it, think that I was duking it out with them. Um, and, uh, that, that, I mean, it wasn't terrible. Like, you know, he just tried to, he just gave me like a C basically functionally a C a passing grade, but like the lowest one you can get. You know, it's funny you say that about the anarchist thing, because Crystal was an authoritarian when she was younger, right? Crystal, is that fair to say? You wanted to listen to the authority as much as possible, Oh, correct? I was very, I was very uh, submissive to authority. Right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I was, pull I think both of you guys had that. Um, I, I also think there's like a gender thing here, too, where as a little girl in America, you're very rewarded for like making people happy and playing nice and whatever. But, oh, I was the teacher's pet, straight A student, like total pleaser whatever you tell me to do i'm gonna figure out how to do it the best that i can so yeah i was yeah. i was late to being a bit more rebellious i guess i'm actually i'm i'm both of you actually when i was younger younger i was a lot more like what you're describing crystal i was like you know little goody two-shoes authoritarian type whatever authority says is right by definition then as soon as i realized that like Cronups don't know what the fuck they're talking about about anything and that awakening for me was probably in like middle school that's when the rebellion started. So I got a little dash of, of both of you in there. But um, so, I, by the way, I had no idea, Hassan, that it was uh, you were 18 when you moved to the U.S. I thought yeah. it was a lot younger because you strike me as like in some ways like the quintessential American guy. No, it's that's cultural imperialism, baby. I, I love <laughs> I love American culture. I grew up with it. I, I consumed it like crazy. I I like it's impossible to avoid it if you grow up in uh, in that part of the world, regardless. But beyond that, my fascination uh, was was just uh, overwhelming. I mean, I would consume American shows, I would read English uh, books. You know what I mean? So it, it's that's part of the reason why uh, cultural stimulation happened for me, and it was so easy for me to integrate as an American into America as a as a you know foreigner i guess technically even though i do have citizenship my anchor baby <laughs> i was gonna say your story is actually somewhat similar to your uncle jank because he was i guess he came younger than you did to the united states but it's still and interesting like, that there's here, parallels uh, i don't even know exactly when he came here i i'm forgetting now but he he was here after high school like full-blown i came yeah. to america uh, after college yeah that's amazing so um Talk to me about your your come up uh, in the left commentator scene, because I saw your entire career from beginning to now. And like really? you fucking exploded in popularity. When I look now, I'll see like your numbers on YouTube. I don't even know if you run those channels on YouTube like they're they're your clips channels. I don't know if you <laughs> run it or somebody else runs it. But like the numbers are ridiculous. You get like 200, 300,000 views per video. It doesn't even matter what the hell you're talking about. So talk to me about your come up and what you attribute that to. Um, so first and foremost, uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of the channels that you see, I, I only have one channel on YouTube. One mm -hmm. like full blown channel that I, uh, have is the verified one. It's the Hasanabi channel, right? right. YouTube.com yeah. slash Hasanabi. Hopefully one day we'll reach a million subs. Um, 600 and, 90,000, I think, right now. But uh, that is a channel that you probably see where I post, like, my... Uh, I have two editors. Like, we post uh, political commentary for the most part there. But then there is what I like to call the Hasanabi Clips Industrial Complex. Yes. Where <laughs> exactly. I have 
Yeah, where I have fan-made clip account because I'm streaming for sometimes 12 hours a day. Right. There's yep. no mm -hmm. way that any human being could just, like, sit through 12 hours of content and, like, find the best parts and, like, cut it appropriately uh, and, and, you know, repackage it and repurpose it and make videos. Uh, so there are fan-run accounts uh, all over YouTube, all over TikTok, everywhere for that, uh, for that matter. And they basically just clip stuff posted i am very open about like not caring about ip i tell right, them yeah. go off kings i don't care uh, do your thing and uh i believe they make a pretty solid amount of money i mean i have clip channels that eclipse my original channel with some clips sometimes they're so quick too like they will literally pump out a clip immediately as soon as i'm done talking about a subject like while the wow. stream is still going on and yeah, some of them have like hundreds of thousands of subs <laughs> and uh, get views like, you know, 200,000, 500,000 million. Like, it's crazy. Wow. You're a, you're a job creator. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. I, but the way I see it is like, um, it's it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, uh, spreading your can, stuff. Sure. Yeah. It comes from, it comes from just uh, not wanting to like have any sort of like protective attitude over IP, like. I, if if these people want to make money off of it, like go ahead, I I don't care, as long as what you don't make it? me look like an asshole, I'm fine with it. <laughs> what was it about Twitch that was like this is my, this is my thing, or do you feel that way about it? Like this is my format, this is what I really what really I respond to. Um, the irony is, I originally got on Twitch because it wasn't my thing. Um, mm. I got on Twitch. I mean. In some ways, Twitch is definitely my thing, obviously. Uh, I, I love gaming. I'm a, I'm a gamer with a capital G. And, uh, you know, I grew up in this space. I saw the space become really volatile, really, really uh, angry and hostile towards marginalized people. I did not like that. I saw this, place, this space on the Internet especially become, like, really reactionary. You guys know this already. A lot of these commentators thrive on that toxicity and made, uh, you know, careers off of it, like Sargon of Akkad and whatnot, right? There was like a radicalization pipeline, all that sort of stuff. I did not like that, and I wanted to change that. The real reason why I uh, came on a Twitch was twofold. One, because I wanted to show people that, uh, you know, being a leftist and being a progressive does not necessarily mean being a joy kill or a woke scold or like a really boring, annoying person who just has completely lost the capability of laughing at things or making jokes. And also on top of that, uh, I wanted to get better at public speaking. <laughs> I was at, at the Young Turks. All of my videos were uh, in front of a green screen and also pre-written. I wrote all of my scripts and I would read a mm. teleprompter. Mm. And I was absolutely terrible at speaking off the cuff. Like I had these ideas, but I was having a really hard time communicating them. I was like, if I go on Twitch and I live stream, for an extended period of time, no matter what happens, after a long enough time has passed, I will get better at being able to elaborate and, and carefully construct my arguments and talk to a larger audience. You know, do, do you think it was no, just sorry, a matter of like you needed the practice or do you think it was a confidence thing? What do you think it was? That's really because that's very that's really fascinating to me is that you like identified this weakness and you're like, I'm going to workshop it over here. And then the over here workshop turned into the thing. Yeah. So 
I, I wanted I wanted a community for myself. And unfortunately, when I was working at TYT, like that was not I didn't have a community for myself. I was still working at TYT. So everything I did was for TYT. And I was having a hard time to just go to a place every day and, uh, you know, gather the troops, I guess, and, and be able to have back and forth conversations with members. Um, so that that's certainly something I was looking for. And Twitch definitely provided that for me. Um, I, I wasn't able to do that at the Young Turks. I was just a, the Young Turks is Hassan. I had a show. I, I worked really hard at it, but ultimately they could just like turn around and be like, hey, you're going to now make this person also be on the show. Like it's nothing was mine. You know what I mean? And I felt that. That this yeah. How, alienation from uh, my labor. Yeah. You and I have something uh, in common because when I first started doing this full time, like late 2012, um, listen, when you start out doing this or when you start out doing like comedy, for example, no, you never have like an identity of your own, a presentation style of your own. You're always like sort of semi copying people who are successful in the field before you. And so one of the early on criticisms that I got where there was definitely a big grain of truth in it is that like, he's Kyle's just a knockoff of like Jank Uger or Kyle's just a knockoff of like Bill Maher. Gross. I know. But like, I'm talking more presentation style more necessarily than the substance. And, you know, I was sort of sensitive to that early on. Eventually I sort of outgrew whatever thing I was subconsciously holding onto in terms of presentation style. Um, but I was sensitive to the criticism. Were you sensitive to the, oh, that's just Jenk's nephew. Were you sensitive to that criticism as well or no? Oh, hell yeah, dude. I mean, yeah. now I don't care because, you know, my, my work speaks now, for now itself. Now you're not Jenk's nephew anymore. That's not, people don't say that about you anymore. Now you're your own person, you know? Yeah, people still try to say it, but it's pretty funny when they try to say it. I'm like, right. okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Jenk made you. Like, or you're Jenk's nephew. It's like, all right. Okay, yeah. But, he's but, he, but that's the thing. The he watch. actually didn't. Like, you outgrew whatever the training wheels were, because you, when you went to Twitch, like you said, it was all your own, and that's where you exploded. Yeah. I I needed, like, look, I love Jenk. I, I think he is maybe too uh, good for his own good. You know what I mean? He wants, he has a worldview, he's hard-headed, but, uh, but I think ultimately he means well, right? Um, but under under the Young Turks, like, I had all of these grand ideas that I constantly wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it, it would just get shot down. Or sometimes when I did stuff, it was just like, yeah, that's not yours. We're going to do whatever we want with that. And that's what we're, that's what happens when you work for someone else. Yeah. That's what happens. And uh, no matter what I did, yeah, I definitely still had a chip on my shoulder about, like, everything I'm doing was uh, a consequence of, like, um, you know, Jenk allowing me to do it. Uh, or I got there uh, because I was Jank's nephew. So in a, in a, in a big way, like uh, me branching out on my own was one of the best things that I could have ever done because it proved to everyone with eyes uh, that, uh, no, I, I definitely did deserve to be in that position. Uh, and I worked very hard uh, to be in that position behind the scenes um, and that um, I could thrive uh, on my own as well. So it, it, it's gone now. I don't really care about it anymore because, again, um, yeah, my work same. speaks for itself. Uh, and I'm very yeah. confident about it. But back then, I certainly was uh, worried that people were just constantly like, oh, dude, this is Jenk's nephew. 
<laughs> what does your brain feel like after a 12-hour Twitch stream? <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I mean, honestly, I just, like, I just shut off completely. Like, I'm so on for the 10 hours, 12 hours that I'm live. And I'm looking at, like, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people are, like, speaking at me nonstop while I'm live. So, like, I have a back-and-forth conversation with them. There's, like things going on people want me to explain concepts to them doing all that so when all of that is shut off it's like a moment of tranquility where i just feel like uh, i can take a breath and uh, it feels it, it just i my brain literally shuts off like people will try to talk to me right after i stream like right after i'm done streaming like my mom will just like literally tell me about her day or just like oh, some other stuff and i'm just like i cannot this is not, <laughs> not you're telling me stuff it is not going through my brain. This is not compute. Yeah. Do you take yeah. anything to like stay up during that? Like, are you doing? Are you drinking coffee? Are you taking yeah. anything? I'd what be high keeps as keeps you balls going? on Adderall, son. <laughs> I would be so no, high I, off my ass cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I live off of uh, a a steady diet of of nicotine gum and also coffee. Like I I'm just cracked out on on coffee and nicotine all the time. Yeah, I would. Like I said, I'd be doing Adderall like nobody's business. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like left media in general. And I mean the, the broad umbrella. So I'm talking about both streamers like yourself and Vosh or people who do more like show shows like a David Pakman or myself or Crystal. Um, what are your criticisms of it? Because in my mind... I feel like one of the biggest problems for left independent new media is that a lot of the people have become too big for our own good. And so we've become like our own reality stars. And the content about us personally actually sometimes does a lot better than the content on specific policy issues. Is that a criticism that you share or what are your criticisms of left new media? No, I 100% I agree with that. I, I stay out of, like, all the fucking uh, Jimmy Dore drama or whatever the fuck's going on at any given moment. Like, people will always come in and they're like, dude, what do you think about this? I'm like, no, no. Yeah, I not. feel the same way. I feel the same way. Yeah, shut the fuck up. Like, I, I look, I would, much rather, there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would much rather talk about, you know, um, like, literally using a pocket pussy than, than that. <laughs> Which I do. I talk about a variety of different things. I just don't think that like uh, leftist content creator drama is is uh, productive or interesting. I, I think it's like extremely nerdy, and uh, it's one way that like people can uh, still uh, feel as though they're consuming political content while actually they're just like consuming drama content. So that's. Um, I would rather just do like I would literally rather just watch 90 Day Fiance, uh, which I do. Yeah, uh, then at least so. you're being like honest about what you're doing with your yeah, time, yeah. how you're spending your right. time. So yeah, you I think it's just more compelling. It's just yeah. more interesting. No. Yeah, the personalities are more interesting. All of that. I mean, so you'll just literally tell your audience like I'm not, I'm not wait, waiting into this because I think yeah. I, I, 
you know, didn't come up in quite, you know, the same way that you guys did. So I don't have quite the same like personal relationships with some of the personalities involved. So I think I get a little bit less pressure to like weigh in on this thing, weigh in on that thing. Um, but sometimes it's hard to resist and people feel like, why aren't you calling out this person or that person for doing this thing or that thing? Like, do you ever feel pressured in that way? Or do you just tell your audience? No, I don't give a fuck. I'm not weighing in. We're going to talk about other things. No, people try to pressure me about that stuff all the time. Uh, I think it's, uh, there is a feeling I, I there's a feeling I have from the many years that I've been doing this where I, I think that like a lot of people thrive on feeling like they're the puppet master. You know what I mean? Because like there's so much interaction with the audience, the content creator itself mm. uh, than ever before. Uh, so they feel as though like they can manufacture the uh, the interaction themselves and they throw some people thrive on that. So like, oh, Kyle had a bad take. You have to talk about this. It's like, mm. no, I don't. actually. I, I don't care. And yeah. um, they do that as well. And that's like beyond the drama. I think that's just like, won't, why won't you address this? Is this like weird need that people have? And it's like, um, I, I just make it very clear. Like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it. Like, it, it's not that I'm like fearful that it's going to, uh, you know, cause a, a rift or anything like that. I just literally personally do not care. Uh, I, I would rather fill my mind up with like other kinds of junk food than that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, and it is junk food. And you know, you're reminding me the one time I ended up involved in this sort of stuff was with destiny and you know, out of nowhere, you, him and I did a stream and we had a good time doing it. And then within like two or three months after it, he started taking these like super over the top vicious shots at me. And you know me, Hassan, I don't care if somebody wants to have policy disagreements with me and talk about the issues. I'm more than I don't care. I don't take that shit personally. Somebody could disagree with me on everything and we could still have like a cordial back and forth. He was like the one person who instantly made it super personal and super vicious and went like over the to call me Kyle dipshit Kalinsky and he's a liar and he's a fraud and he's a this and he's a that. I'm like, where the fuck did any of this come from? I never asked um, for this. I was never sports. anything but nice to the guy. That's uh, that's just blood sports. And right. uh, the way to the way to maintain an audience, uh, if you grow up in like that debate lord space, is by being like the alpha debate lord. Because like a lot of that audience thrives on blood sport, and they, like you constantly have to maintain it, and you have to do like I guess um, uh, authenticity checks basically. And you show how authentic you are by being like super fucking toxic because for a lot of, uh, for a lot of young men on the internet, like that's the only way they think things are authentic. Like you can't mm. be you're a nice person. You're obviously like you're hiding something. No one is a mm. nice person. I'm not a nice person. My life is miserable. So everyone else is probably just mis as miserable as I am. And, uh, the only way that I feel like a content creator is like real is if they're being fucking an asshole. Um, which is ironic because I myself am an asshole in many ways, but um, that's part of the reason why like you have to constantly, constantly have these like back and forth uh, arguments with all these people and you have to constantly manufacture drama and chaos and, and thrive in it. And I think it's like, one, it's unsustainable. Two, it's very lonely. And three, uh, it's just, uh, I think it, it's again, unproductive and the, the theory for change there is that like you're basically changing people's minds from I guess like being Nazi debate lords to being debate lords for whatever your personal 
uh, uh, ideology is in that given moment, which can change, and then your audience will follow you and change as well for that. I, I would much rather be cool and entertaining and have people watch me for that. And even if they come in originally to be like, yo, fuck this guy, I hate this guy, to be like, you know what? Maybe I was being an asshole. Like, this dude seems normal and nice. And uh, maybe he's got some good ideas. Like, he just seems like he genuinely cares. I think that's that's my theory. That's my vision for change uh, and changing, like, spaces on the Internet. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is a uh, that's one that both fosters growth and is, uh, I think, more successful than just, like, constantly striving to be the, the intellectual gladiator to your audience that is, like, literally looking for blood at any any given uh, step. I think that's actually a very insightful comment. Where do you think yeah. that that instinct and desire comes from among the um, among the audiences that are looking for that like blood sport and who can be the king of the assholes? Well, I, I think it <clears throat> I think it originally stems from like reactionary commentary. I think like fascist, white supremacists, and like alt right figures uh, did a pretty good job of portraying themselves as like the the logic and reasoning brigade when all that meant basically was just who can rationalize uh, logical fallacies better mm. you know and faster and uh, who comes across as a victor in a debate uh, uh, so you think they sort of like created that demand versus there being like an organic demand there among the audience that then they met the need of I think there is an organic demand uh, as well, certainly. I mean, people want to see their team win. This is, it's basically like, it's like WWE, but for, yeah. for nerds, <clears throat> for debate club nerds. Yeah, so there I definitely wanted... was an audience for it too. Don't get me wrong. I just like, I want people to get out of that mindset though. And that expectation. I don't, I don't think it's good. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'm not, anti-conflict full stop i just think the conflict needs to have context and perspective and the proper targets so like when i used to watch noam chomsky lectures when i was younger you go on youtube and watch this hour-long thing he's the only guy who makes monotone sound good and like <laughs> who's he going after he's going after the military industrial complex and he's going after wall street and he's going after billionaires and he's breaking down the way the system works and it's like yes this is all substantive but when, you know, you see left commentators going after other left commentators, it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, have you lost all context and perspective as to what matters here? I think it's, uh, it's, I 100% agree with you. I think it's uh, partially because uh, it comes from a place of powerlessness. Because, like, it, it's in a way no different than the, the uh, targeting campaigns that we see that we have seen a lot more of under the Obama era and the Trump era as well, where like people would just be like, this unique individual right here, this individual right here has done an individual racist act. And some of those are incredibly warranted, right? Um, but there are ones where it's just like absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and, and you know, uh, people hyper-focus on those individual acts of aggression because they feel powerless. Uh, in the face of these unshakable systems that have uh, that have been created specifically for, uh, uh, you know, upholding and and continuing a capitalism in the way that it exists, so you can't focus on 
these structural inequalities. You can't change that. That that is like far too comprehensive and and virtually impossible. Like what we're gonna fucking vote for Joe Biden to like you know defeat racism. It's not gonna happen, right? Don't um, vote Hassan. Yeah. So so people <laughs> so people will then focus their efforts on where they can make change, and where they can make change is you know fucking brands that will uh, concede to uh, people that are upset about a uh, microaggression or brands that, right. or, or, you know, the Colbert show said something that's like anti-Asian or, or whatever. And, you know, that's, and like creating these sorts of campaigns feels good because one, you show everybody else that like you're on the right side, your team is, and, and two, you, you feel like your team is winning. Uh, you're, you're making like, somewhat tangible change that you can immediately identify and that's a lot more uh rewarding than than you know failing to even take a piece of the police budget uh and reappropriate it to like uh you know social uh, services and whatnot for the 10th year in a fucking row and then have every republican go oh my god look at the crime look at how much crime is happening right now that's literally because of defund the police, as though we have successfully defunded the police anywhere. You know what yeah. I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. Crime and goes up crime everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like defund the police is the problem. Yeah. Even though we haven't defunded the police. So. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, do you see yourself as having like a particular goal or mission in what you're doing? Yeah, I do. Um, I want to entertain people and I want to educate them and uh, I want to do agitative uh, propaganda. I, I want people to recognize that a lot of the problems that they experience stem from the current economic organization of the economy, that uh, we are still significantly better off in our labor aristocracy in comparison to like, you know, a developing nation uh, and, and a kid growing up in a developing nation. But ultimately, uh, even with respect to like other wealthier individuals here in this country and the way that this system is designed, um, you know, things could be significantly better, that we could have a lot more freedoms. Ultimately, I think it, it still revolves around like personal liberty and pursuit of, of fulfilling endeavors. And uh, we are unable to do that when we're shackled. And I think that people should understand that and people should recognize that. And that's what I choose to do. That's what I try to do as best as possible. And also have fun. I like to have fun. It's interesting that you actually described what you do as like, I want to do propaganda because I actually think that's uniquely honest because everybody's got a perspective. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's trying to analyze the world. But in order to analyze the world, you have to do that through your own lens and your own filter. And everybody's filter, whether or not they think they have a bias, they have a bias. I'm not putting a negative or positive connotation on the word bias. I'm just objectively saying people have biases. So when you say, I want to do propaganda, basically you're just admitting the thing out loud that basically everybody in this space is doing to one extent or another. Yeah, um, gamers and neoliberals are very similar with with in that in that respect. Like, so what I mean by that is this: uh, gamers think that uh, you know if you have a black female lead in a video game, that's political because the default position is the white male, right? Now this is like real id Paul stuff, but uh, just uh, stick with me on this. So. Anything that deviates beyond what the default position is inherently considered to be political because it's outside of what they are comfortable with and what they are used to, right? And then they will react to it and, and uh, feel like, you know, everything is getting SJW. 
Meanwhile, Call of Duty is like literally the most political franchise of all time, okay, backed by the Defense Department, actually engages in propaganda where like American war crimes are, are uh, attributed to Russia, our enemy in the game, including the highway of hell for those of you uh, who don't know. Um, like these are, these are war crimes so crazy that they've literally said like our enemies are doing that because these are such brutal actions. Um, and, and that's not political because you know, you're not thinking about it. It's like the default character that you're playing and you're doing your murder and you're, you know, doing your imperialism, which by the way, I love Call of Duty. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying, you know, cancel Call of Duty or whatever. And that default position is neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism in the United States of America. So most people that say I am unbiased, I'm looking at this from an unbiased uh, place, are benefiting from having their biases correspond to the current economic organization and the current political structure that we exist under. There is no such thing as being unbiased, as you also pointed out. You're just, you can just say that because you agree with the outcomes of this system. And, and that's all it is. That's why you can get away with being like, I'm a centrist or I'm, I'm just unbiased here. I'm just looking at this from an unbiased point of view. Does that make sense? Or did I, it, was it cool? It, yeah, no, no, it, it makes totally sense. makes sense. We were actually talking about something similar recently with regards to commercials. Like, I think Biden made that kind of dopey comment about, like, look at all the multiracial families they're putting in commercials or whatever. But you have this intense reaction against something like making a protagonist in a video game a black woman. And and that intense reaction, that group of people pretends like it's the other side that's obsessed with identity when the reality is they're right. just as obsessed with identity. Oh, yeah. right. It's just that right. they're obsessed with, like, the, the standard, what the norm in America has been. Yeah. For, for the, you know, hundreds of years that we've been in existence. I was wondering, Hassan, do you think that because you didn't grow up in America, you're able more clearly to see sort of like that water, what the default position is, the water that we're all swimming in, that if you do grow up here, it's a little bit harder to separate yourself from the type of propaganda that we receive from the time that we're little kids? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, Americans cannot fathom how the rest of the world views them as like incredibly powerful bullies. Like they, the, the perspective is so different here. It's wild. Like go anywhere else. And there are studies to back this up as well. Like who, who do you think, what was that study conducted recently? Or they do it every year. It was like, who do you think is the most destabilizing power on the planet? And like, it's almost always the United States of America. Hmm. It's literally like, yeah. always the U.S., always by yeah, a mile. Always the U.S. Yeah. Because everybody knows, like, the United States is not the world police, or rather, they're the world police in the same way that, like, you know, we uh, or, or marginalized communities view the police as an occupying force. Uh, yes, it's supposed to be there to protect and serve, and uh, functionally it's supposed to do that, and maybe sometimes it does do that, but, like, for the most part, it does not do that at all. And it's just bullying people and rolling over them and, uh, you know, and doing whatever the fuck they have to to get their own, uh, to, to realize their own economic interests. So that was, that that's definitely contributed to me viewing uh, the culture here in America in a, in a completely different way. Yeah, absolutely. But it's social conditioning. I don't, I don't fault people too much unless they're like, ignorant assholes and uh and and even when they are faced with uh opposition and empirical evidence they still turn around and go no i don't care like 
this deserved to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's interesting because they actually, I, ooh, my audio just got loud in my ears for a second. Um, it's interesting because I saw the poll that you're referring to. I, like, it was Gallup or Pew or one of the big respected polling companies that asked this question, who's the biggest threat to world peace? They did it in, like, I think the year was 2012 or 2013, around there. The answer was America by so much that they stopped asking the question from then on out. And that's really interesting. <laughs> you wonder you wonder if somebody actually made a phone call and was like, we don't want to ask this question anymore, because it would have been America every single year. So they probably <laughs> were like, okay, fine, we'll pull the plug on that. Um, Hassan, what do you think of uh, Biden's presidency so far? Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> it's fucking dog shit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's literally what we expected. Uh, at first, I was surprised. Is the original, uh, the the original rhetoric that I saw from Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, was like wild. They were like, "We are not repeating the mistakes of the ACA. We're not repeating the 2008 mistakes of the Obama, uh, like you know, of the Obama campaign. Uh, these guys don't want to play ball with us. It doesn't matter. We're just gonna roll over them." And and I loved that. I, I was like, "Hell yeah, that's great." Uh, and then. They and then we started seeing like little symbolic victories in the form of like executive actions, like uh, you know, uh, going back to the one of the last things that Obama did, which was uh, stop using private prisons of the federal system, which does not make up the the majority regardless. But then, when I noticed that there was a carve out for ICE and immigration detention, like oh yep. no, that yep. was like the first time I was like oh no, this is bad. People were yelling at me saying, like, dude, you're so unreasonable, like being ridiculous. And then uh, we started seeing the manufactured crisis of like uh, immigration uh, come up again. And, you know, the media was being as reactionary as they possibly could be, uh, even though, you know, uh, they were they were so woke when Trump was president. It's crazy. Mm. Um, and uh, and and, you know, trying to push Biden more to the right uh, on a lot of these issues. That wasn't good. And then what what really solidified that uh, this administration was not going to be uh, even uh, a subpar was uh, the the uh, fight for the $15 minimum wage. Broadly mm -hmm. popular, as you already know, you know, uh, one, uh, the ballot measure to increase uh, the minimum wage of $15 in Florida won, and it was more popular than both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So obviously, like even Republicans want this, um, and yet uh, they stopped fighting for it. They didn't want to change the Senate parliamentarian and totally said like, oh, no, well, I guess rules are rules. Like this can't Ugh. be a part of the budget reconciliation. And that's when I was like, that's terrible. Even if you could not pass $15 minimum wage for one reason or the other, you should have tried to do it uh, all the way to the finish line. They brought it to the finish line. And then claim that this did not impact deficit, uh, which is false. Like it's verifiably false, very easily uh, disproven, uh, and and went off the whims of the the um, you know, Senate parliamentarian and said, oh yeah, we're we just can't we just can't add this onto the bill. The real reason why they didn't want to do it, I think, was because they wanted to cape for the uh, Maggie Hassan and the Kirsten Cinemas and the and the Joe Mansions on the Democratic side, uh, I think that was the real reason. They they knew that they were not going to get majority votes on that, and it was going to make them look bad. And 
that was, I think, the reason why uh, they didn't push for it. But it was still terrible. Like Kamala could have over uh, uh, over uh, rode that. Uh, there were so many different things that they could have done, and they didn't do it. And that's when I realized, like, oh no, this is same old, same old, like business as usual. Well, and that was one of the hallmarks of the Obama era. And he still talks like this as if um, politics is completely static. You can't possibly persuade or move anyone. So he's just like, well, I didn't have the votes, so I didn't even try. You know, we just, yeah, we couldn't get the Employee Free Choice Act. We couldn't do we couldn't do a public option on health care. We just we didn't have the votes. So there there's no recognition that people can be moved. Politicians can be moved or at the very least, as you're pointing out, $15 $15 minimum wage, really popular, passed overwhelmingly in Florida, a state that Trump obviously won by, you know, a pretty significant margin. So at the very least, if you are making yourself very publicly on the side of something that is incredibly popular, then maybe you're able to win an election and put some other politicians in office who are going to back you up on those priorities that are supported by the American people. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm convinced the Democrats want to lose because like, like there are better ways of of at least shaping the narrative that like Republicans are demons. Even if you yep. don't care about like making positive change, why are you centering the conversation around Joe Manchin? Like, tell him to shut the fuck up, <laughs> threaten him with like committee removals, right? And and then reshift your effort. Even if you know it's going to be a losing battle, ultimately refocus your efforts on the Republican Party and how they are obstructionist and how they don't want you to get $15 minimum wage. Like Trump's populism was, whether you like to admit it or not, very successful. And it literally changed, I think, a lot of these Republican hogs' minds on on social safety nets. Uh, Or rather, it didn't change their minds, but um, they were already pretty positive on social safety nets. And they just uh, they it, it was impossible to avoid in the media that narrative, and yet we still somehow find our way to do it. Like Joe Manchin saying he doesn't want fifteen dollar minimum wage in Virginia is ridiculous when like the majority, the overwhelming majority of uh, his constituents want it. So who are you working for? Well, we know who he's working for. Yeah, he's fucking billionaires. But you yeah, know. you um you made a great point that I never thought of, which is they um. If they're not going to do the policy, at the very least, they could just, like, message a lot better and talk about the stuff as if they're really for it to actually get people to think they're really for it and then blame the Republicans. But you're right. They're not even doing that. And the grossest trick that I've seen is the media trick where they they try to describe Joe as, like, the new FDR, and they try to, like— <laughs> Pat the left on the back as if, like, you guys have real influence now. And then we just get none of the things that would make him the new FDR and would make it so the left has influence. And that's, like, super disingenuous to me. And it's so sad that, like, people get this totally, you know, incorrect picture of what's actually happening. Yeah, no, it's John McElwee and, like, maybe the Pod Johns. They're the ones who have, like, they're the ones who are, like, marginally, incrementally, maybe, if if at all, like, a little bit more progressive than the average rust belt uh psychopathic vampire consultant you know so (laughs) what do you make of how do you explain two things number one the um 
improvement of Trump among Latino voters in particular. And then also, um, what do you make of Kyle and I were talking about the New York City bayoral race and final results aren't in, but it looks like Eric Adams is going to win and he's going to win on the strength of basically working class black and brown voters. What do you make of of those developments? With Trump, I mean, Trump winning uh, Latino voters is is understandable. I mean, he's macho. American politics uh, has been a a uh, a theater for uh, charisma and like cultural issues for the longest time, like wedge issues uh, that uh, Republicans and Democrats both seek out to create like polarizations amongst the two parties when they are absolutely unified on a lot of issues. Maybe marginally mm-hmm. better on certain stuff and. It's certainly better on the aesthetics of progress when it comes to like liberals versus conservatives, right? And uh, social issues, versus, yeah. Social, yeah, issues, social issues, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but, but for that reason, like I think we've already conditioned the American voter base to just like only respond to cultural issues and uh, vote for whoever is like the big macho dog if you're uh, if that's what you're into. So then, yeah, it makes sense that like. Uh, the Latino voter base would respond positively to that as well. I mean, one of the key things that always blows my mind, that frustrates me so much, is that, and Republicans know this, if you look at, like, uh, the Texas Republican GOP initi- uh, Texas GOP initiatives, like, uh, with their outreach, they hyper-focus on Catholicism and they hyper-focus on culture issues and things like that. Why? Because Latinos, as a demographic, are very hard to pin down as, a, as like, one big uh, demographic. It's not like black people at all. Actually, black people are just unique as a demographic that you can do that uh, for uh, for obvious reasons like slavery and the, the genocidal removal of, uh, you know, all African descendants of slaves and their uh, ethnic backgrounds and cultural identities, all that stuff. But with Latinos, there is one consistent thing that comes up in every poll. Yes, they are socially conservative, especially older Latinos I'm talking about. However, they respond incredibly positive to government initiatives. Like they will openly state that they want big government, which is like probably the most the the worst way that you can ask that as a question is like, do you want a bigger government? Do you want big government? And Latinos overwhelmingly uh, say yes, higher higher percentage than any other uh, demographic group in this country. And this is consistent for younger Latino uh, uh, populations and older Latino populations. And Democrats refuse to hammer that point. They refuse to feed into that expectation that people have. And then they lose out on the culture war stuff. And that's precisely why uh, that's precisely why Donald Trump uh, improved that and also a lot of misinformation uh, networks that opened up basically on Facebook and whatnot that were uh, reappropriated into just like getting Trump elected again and QAnon and all this other, all these other conspiracies, like in places like Florida, especially. Um, so those were the reasons I think for uh, your first question, your second question, Eric Adams, like uh, that, that entire pool was just, like, that was dog shit. The New York yeah, mayoral race. Completely. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, is, is it a New York mayor? Like Bill de Blasio is the most progressive mayor that we're going to see. And I mean, look at him. He's terrible. So yeah, he um, wouldn't even endorse Bernie over Hillary. That's what that I asshole. mean. Like, yeah, these mm-hmm. guys are, they're all 
they're always going to be terrible. It's New York. You're the New York mayor. You're the mayor of Wall Street. You're not the mayor of like actually New York City. Like you command one of the largest armies on the planet and uh, you are working at the behest of real estate, Wall Street, like big developers and wealthy people. And that's it. Okay. That's your entire purpose is that it doesn't matter how progressive you are. Like it doesn't matter if someone who was like claiming to be a socialist one in New York. I don't believe well i guess technically bill de blasio literally did say that at some point he said he's a democratic socialist at some point but like did he it uh, yeah i think he brought it up uh, uh, once but and recently but it doesn't matter because you're not you're not the mayor of new york you're the mayor of wall street and and, uh, big corporations you know ross i think it was ross barkin who did some really good coverage of the race um laid it out this way which is basically like i mean new york used to have this history and legacy of these big sort of public works projects i mean you think of you know public housing and those sorts of initiatives and then you had the bankruptcy and ever since then you've had you know as you described you're not really the mayor of the city or the mayor of wall street and this aggressive implementation of a neoliberal agenda and I think you're right that essentially the ship has almost sailed in terms of really turning things around and doing these big public works projects or taking a different approach to government um, whatsoever, which I just thought that was an interesting perspective. And de Blasio is a good case in point because he did position himself as that, like, you know, more radical, progressive vision, focusing on homelessness and issues like that. And yet, you know, even there, first of all, you're so subject to the the battles he had with Cuomo, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like the the fundamental sort of governing reality of New York City is basically already set. Yeah, it's it's you're just playing a role. You're you're a puppet. You're you're playing out your role. It's it's largely symbolic uh, in the gentrifying uh, gentrifying project that is like development in Manhattan and also the other five boroughs that are also gentrifying rapidly uh, so that wealthy people can live uh, there at peace and you push the poor people that used to live there away. You uh, you price out uh, the, the unkempt, uh, unwashed masses uh, from the uh, real estate market there. And then you just like kind of bully homeless people and push them to a corner and uh, the same, you stop and frisk black people in the neighborhoods that they still live in that haven't been gentrified yet. And that's that's what you're doing as the New York mayor, no matter what. So, of course, they were going to vote for Eric Adams. Like, uh, I mean, he's a he's a really funny person. So I guess there's that. Like, it's just very weird. All I, I don't know why every New York mayor has to be fucking weird. Like, they are literally all weirdos. Think about it. Like, you got Giuliani. <laughs> you got Bloomberg, who's just a sick freak. Uh, you got Bill de Blasio, who's like, a gigantic loser and also very weird. And now you have Eric Adams. Like, he's he's great. Going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Crystal, to go back to the thing that you asked about um, the Latino community along the border in Texas yeah. and why they voted for, for Trump. Yeah, I think, Hassan, you're definitely right when you bring up the culture war stuff. And uh, the other thing, and Crystal, I think it was you who told me this based off something you read. Some of them reported that just the checks, the original checks that had Trump's name on it, that they were like, he gave me a check and it had his name on it. So I'm going to vote for him. Right. That's, is what that... they t- that's what they told yeah. to some journalists is like because you had a, a significant turnout jump of people who hadn't really voted in the past. So Democrats turned out 
you know, essentially the same numbers that they turned down under Hillary Clinton. The difference in why Trump improved so much is, number one, Republicans actually spent money and resources in the community just doing like whether their message was good, bad or indifferent, doing the work of trying to reach voters and organize them. But, yeah, there were a number of voters who told journalists, like, I got to check with his name on it. And it was super helpful. And that was important to me. So, yeah, I'm voting for him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you have that. That's the exact thing that we've talked about before, which is that it's it's unfortunately easy to change to to make people's focus more on the culture war. It's like, you know, you're trying to explain something substantive and or on an economic. And then it's just like, you know, the equivalent of like, oh, squirrel runs by. It's like, oh, you could just get them to focus on things that definitely aren't as important and don't dominate their lives as much and so when you have that mixed with like just a little bit of economic help you could see how it can have some uh some negative consequences with it um crystal i know you had some other policy stuff that you wanted to ask Hassan. yeah so um two things i was wondering if you think uh, we were talking about the the biden administration and like their failures on 15 dollars minimum wage do you think the criticisms of the squad and the sort of le- more leftist um, members of the House and the Senate has been justified, or do you think it's been too harsh? Um, I don't know what uh, otherwise, like, anti-electoralist leftists, uh, like, I don't know what they expect from the squad beyond, like, you know, clippable moments like the ones that Ilhan Omar, uh, who is incredibly fucking brave, uh, uh, gets to have where she'll like you know ask a normal question to anthony blinken and then the entire reactionary media circuit will just like unload onto her and be like this you know muslim woman wearing a hijab is actually an anti-semite i promise you please believe us Mm -hmm. um but like beyond that like what are they supposed to do i mean look i don't know where you guys even uh uh, fall on the the force the vote stuff when it was uh, first happening yeah but i said something along the lines of like i wanted to I wanted to force the vote on at least even the public option. Like if we're going to do a symbolic, if we're going to symbolically push for something, well, I would have much rather wanted to have, I, I would have much rather had like someone who could potentially replace Pelosi, right? Uh, without, uh, without a replacement, it's like you're that, that is not even a hollow victory. It's a hollow defeat. Um, uh, and, and obviously that takes time and like, you know, you have to work through the party infrastructure to, have your troops ready, basically, uh, for that uh, before that opportunity. But I, I wanted to push a, a public option at least. Like, why are we not even talking about the public option now? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I, I yeah. don't even want Medicare for all. I want a nationalized, fully nationalized healthcare uh, system. I think that is the best possible way, is the most ethical way to go about it, and that's the yep, best possible payment. way to go about it. We are, uh, but I think Medicare for all was a good stepping stone towards that. Okay. Like some form of comprehensive single payer universal healthcare, um, but we're having a hard time expanding uh, or uh, Medicare at this point. Like Medicare so, eligibility, uh, getting lowered to 55 is out of the question now. Now we're talking about like, you know, or or even lower than that. Like we're, it, it's ridiculous to me that like, uh, we have this expectation that like, this squad uh, is going to be a bunch of magicians that so, somehow magically are able to craft uh, legislation. Um, I mean, they definitely mess up. I, I know, like, uh, uh, Kyle tracks them very closely. Yeah, and, let, let you know, me interject. Great suggestions always, but ultimately, yeah. like, I don't know what they're supposed to do. 
So I j- let me interject because I just want to break it down for you. So first, let me I want to separate some things out. There are criticisms that I think are totally illegitimate, and I think it undermines the cause of people who are going after the squad from the left. And the criticisms that I think are illegitimate is that is when anybody brings up something like corruption or anybody brings up, uh, oh. you know, oh, they're just like Pelosi. If you can't see the difference between AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, and Pelosi, you're just you're just dense. Like you're not you're a, a sloppy, unnuanced thinker, and so that annoys me. And the other thing, the corruption thing, annoys me because words have to have meaning, guys. And corruption means you're taking money from donors and you're doing the bidding of the donors. If you think that's the case with the Justice Democrats, you're just factually wrong. They're not taking money and they're not doing the bidding of donors. However, so those are the criticisms I think are totally illegitimate, and I wish everybody would stop making them because I don't think people understand how dumb they look when they make those criticisms, okay? The criticisms that I think are legit are the following. So yes, when they tried to do force the vote over Medicare for all, they didn't lift a finger on that front and they didn't agree with it. Okay, fair enough. The response from AOC was interesting, though, because she said, I don't want to do it on Medicare for all because there's no chance of us passing Medicare for all. We have to keep our powder dry for something where it could actually work. And she brought up, $15 minimum wage for that. Then the fight came up over $15 minimum wage, and they instantly folded, and they didn't do dick. And they had the ability to block all legislation and say, we're not voting for anything unless it has $15 minimum wage in there. Now, if they were to do that, the media would have rained holy hell on them. The, you know, the... Democratic leadership would have rained holy hell on them, and they would have said, you're in league with the Republicans, and you're obstructing and helping them. But you, if you had a spine and you knew how to fight, you could say, that's bullshit. I'm blocking this from the left, and if you want us to vote for it, it's not on me. It's on Biden. It's on Manchin. It's on the Senate Democrats who are against it. Put the $15 minimum wage in there. It polls at fucking 70% or whatever it polls at. Everybody wants this. There's even some polls where Republicans want it. So who are we kidding? We're fighting for the American people and Democratic leadership isn't and the Republicans aren't. And so they didn't fight on that. Where they're failing, it's a very simple answer. Here's where they're failing. They were sent there to do Tea Party tactics. They're not doing Tea Party tactics. They're fucking try, trying to play the inside game and try like if I'm nice to Pelosi and I'm nice to leadership, maybe they'll give me some crumbs of change and I'll like that. That's not going to fucking work. It's never worked, which is why we sent you there with the Tea Party idea in mind, because when the Tea Party did it, it fucking worked. They got a lot of their priorities because they made John Boehner fucking hate them just as much as the Tea Party Republicans hated the Democrats. They hated Republican leadership and they shifted that Overton window to the right. As much as I love the Justice Democrats and it breaks my heart to say it, they just haven't done the thing that we sent them there to do. So that would be like the substantive criticism of them. How do you respond to that? I 100% agree with what you're saying. I think that um, I think that there is more that they could do as far as like utilizing their uh, incredible uh, media credentials. Like they're very good. They're they're savvy. Like they're really fucking savvy. They know how to use social media really well. They know how to u- use utilize the media really well. Um, I wish they would do more of that to at least like, you know, to instill certain messages uh, uh, back to the American people, like to educate the American people as best as they possibly can by even in certain instances, blocking legislation and yeah. looking like a bottleneck for progress uh, for, for um, you know, for uh, uh, showcasing that like these are these are positions that we have as the left. So you are right on that. I think that they should be fighting uh, harder on on um, certain issues, especially like fifteen dollar minimum wage. All but, I want is all I want is for them to fight as hard for things like fifteen dollar minimum wage as Josh Gottheimer will f- fight for like the salt tax cap. 
you know, like <laughs> yeah, oh, <for> sure. <laughs> it goes so hard for like, we will not lower, we will not increase corporate tax rate, or we will not, you know, we, we must have this tax cut for our rich constituents in our district. The right wing Democrats are so willing to draw red lines that they actually stick to. And I just haven't seen that happen a single time from the left. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, think about the the entire conversation around Joe Manchin. It's like, like part of it is because like uh, everybody loves to look at politics like it's a sport. So we analyze the districts and and you know states. Like Joe Manchin is not supposed to be. There is not supposed to be a Democrat in West Virginia. It's plus thirty five Trump state. You know what I mean? Like that's crazy that Joe Manchin is there. So we have to like sit there, and and have him. Uh, play this song and dance to do his like own personal branding project. Uh, same with Kirsten Cinema, but like Arizona is a little different now. But still, um, uh, and I wish that like that conversation would not just shift over to AOC and Ilhan Omar because of their obstructionist positions in certain times, uh, but also the reasons as to why they're engaging in this action. Because like when you ask Joe Manchin, like, why are you doing this? Like, why don't you want to increase minimum wage? Like, he has no fucking answers for that. So the conversation just ends at like Joe Manchin is an asshole, but we have to, you know, we just have to, uh, you know, stand around and act like uh, the the main reason for why he's a Democrat is it goes beyond uh, voting in, uh, you know, court appointments uh, and, and judges. Uh, and and that like he needs to be there for key votes. And these are key fucking votes that he's not. Therefore, like, I wish that we could have that same conversation around Ilhan Omar and AOC and all these other people, um, especially with respect to, uh, like, why they're doing, uh, why they're taking such actions. Yeah. Um, and well, then have think... a conversation around uh, the, the uh, importance of, you know, in increasing the minimum wage, even though I... that's, that's going to create a whole separate battle around, like, misinformation and how, like, they're going to bastardize it no matter what happens. Like, oh, just, yeah. They already do it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they'll yeah. vilify. I mean, they'll be they'll they'll give Joe Manchin the benefit of the doubt. And this is part of the problem is like the media either intentionally or it's just ignorant of actual politics in West Virginia. So they assume when Joe Manchin says West Virginians don't want, you know, this voting rights bill or West Virginians don't want to lift the minimum wage or West Virginians don't want Medicare for all. They just take his word for it rather than actually understanding. I mean, the big part of the real reason Joe Manchin is able to win in West Virginia is more because he is, you know, culturally conservative on things like guns and he's very pro-coal and he's very anti-abortion. When you pull on economic issues in West Virginia, he actually is very out of step with yep. a lot of what the citizens want and definitely need. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were to be like a culturally conservative uh, in the same way that like Joe Manchin is, um, but economically progressive uh, person that's like running in an area like that, you would get obliterated. They would call you I, a racist. I don't agree. Sexist. I don't agree on that. No, no, no. I, I'm saying the media would obliterate you and oh, never oh, give oh, you the oh, same oh. benefit of the doubt. No, gotcha. I, I, I don't. That's true. I don't disagree on the, uh, that. That people might like you. I'm talking about like yeah. people won't even have a chance to know you or get to know what your positions are because they would engage in the same thing that they did with Corbyn in the UK and with mm. what Ber they did to Bernie in uh, in the United States. Like they will literally just turn around and be like, "This person is awful. This person is racist. This person is sexist. 
racist. And if they are culturally conservative and they're like anti-abortion, then, I mean, they probably are. They probably are misogynistic at the very least. Like you're literally trying to tell women that they should not have autonomy over their own uh, bodies, right? But that same, uh, like that same mentality of like, well, leftists can win in these areas never gets realized partially because of the the overwhelming uh, media coverage on on controversies and issues that uh, they they absolutely turn a blind eye to with someone like Joe Manchin. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, the other thing, Hassan, that I don't even really want to ask you about, but I feel like I should ask you about is I think you, there was some criticism that you had of uh, Sagar and I's appearance on Rogan. So since we did that whole section earlier about like leftists not fighting, let's get in a fight now. What, did you... <laughs> what was your what was your issue with what we had to say there? Look, I, I don't know Sagar like that, like as your co-host, uh, yeah. but. I do think that, I mean, I, I think he's like a big Tucker Carlson fan and I despise Tucker Carlson. I'm sorry. I think, I think Tucker Carlson is a charlatan. He's a demagogue. He is absolutely a wasp nationalist. Like, and I, I think the imagery that he invokes, like the, this idealistic America that he talks about is, is certainly one where, uh, you know, immigrants are not welcome. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an anchor baby. So any guy that's going to be like, yeah, immigrants are unwashed and dirty and they're bringing disease uh, is is not going to be right in my book. OK, yeah. so when I see people simp for Tucker Carlson, I'm like, no, nah, no shot, um, especially when did they're he, openly did he conservative simp for, for Tucker. And I don't want to like, listen, I never want to speak for Sagar, but I can tell you, like, even in today's show, and this is Thursday that we're recording this I, he literally said in the show today, Tucker Carlson is full of shit because um, we were talking about this lawsuit that happened a while back where um, Fox News argued in order to get Tucker out of a defamation suit that like no one should take the, what this guy says as true. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that you're I, I would say that your reading of Sagar is not accurate, at least. At I this point. Well, he used to he used to like him, Crystal. He used to like him. Yeah. He used to like him a lot. Well, I think so. Yeah. So, and again, this is always uncomfortable. He's very when you're reactionary like... towards China as well. Like the, the, the lab leak stuff here, here's what it is. Okay. Cause you guys were talking about the lab leak and I think yeah. that's a theory and that is not uh, any, that, that sounds like a very credible theory. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because most people don't understand how like zoonotic diseases are uh, spread. So they're like, what the fuck a bat and a pangolin. That's crazy. That sounds dumb. Whereas right. on the other hand, you have a lab where it's a Chinese lab in Wuhan and it's a, it's a PSL4 lab. And like, what if it leaked from there? And then immediately people latch on and like tie other conspiracy theories that have already been disproven by the scientific community, like uh, genetic modifications, like, or the humans, like personally modifying this virus uh, and, and like, you know, it, it's actually technically like a Chinese bioweapon or whatever. Uh, so there, there's like a lot of stuff that has already uh, been discussed uh, over and over again. Uh, as far as the theory goes, uh, as far as the lab leak theory goes, I don't have a problem with it. It's a theory, just like uh, just like the the uh, natural like uh, wet market, theory, wet the natural theory. like spread mm -hmm. uh, theory, zoonotic spread yeah. theory. Neither yeah. of those, neither of those theories are anything beyond theories. Like they are just speculations. This takes a long time. It takes like around 12 years sometimes figure out like how a disease started right um but what i don't like about like sagar's rhetoric for example uh, uh, with respect to china is like 
it literally be like, this is just like the WMDs in the Iraq war. And that, uh, it, the WMD in the Iraq war was a lie that the American government told to go to war with Iraq. So why would you then turn around and be like, and that's why like we have mm. to be super reactionary towards China. I'm like, what? The well, fuck? but I think you're, I think you're, taking it further than where he takes it and in fairness like he's way more interested in china and way more um from a policy perspective hawkish towards china than i am yeah. um although he always is really clear to say like i don't want a cold war with china. i don't want to go go to actual war with china and um also very clear to say like the idea that this was some intentionally released bioweapon is foolish and not true at all and in fact i mean the u.s government was involved in funding some of the research that was going on in that lab so if it did leak from the wuhan lab it, we are as sort of culpable and involved in this as anyone is but i do think it's important to figure out how the pandemic started and i also I do think yeah, and of course. I mean, and I also do think that it is an important media story because for so long, even though this was, you know, this was one plausible theory and the zoonotic origin is one plausible theory, I would say based on my, you know, non-scientist reading of the evidence at this point, it's more plausible and there's more preponderance of evidence on the side of the lab leak theory. But this was completely dismissed by the media for a long time it was always you know this is debunked this is discredited etc cetera, etc cetera. so i do Trump. think it's an interesting window into the way that the media was able to get this really really important question of how this thing started very wrong at the beginning of this but i but i don't even think it's like very wrong uh like because again they're both theories the the thing is like they certainly did not even lend any credence to uh the alternative and part of that was because uh, I assumed that they were operating in unison to make sure that there was no, like, uh, additional agitation towards China and uh, any sort of, like, hawkish uh, opinions towards China was seen as, like, a Trumpian thing to do, which is probably part of the reason why they immediately dismissed that. Um, but, yeah, but don't, I mean, but don't you, like, I see that as an issue, though. No, that no, you I, have, I, That I the goal that. is, like, we have this goal over here to oppose this politician. So rather than neutrally looking at what happened, we're gonna take a side, even though both of these theories are still completely plausible. Yeah, no, I I, I do agree, I understand. And I think that, that the media is not truthful, of, of course not. Um, ultimately, I think it's really interesting that like the media has now completely turned on the original theory that it, like, uh, it could have been a lab leak and is, uh, fully in support of it, almost it feels like where, like the yeah, well, Trump's gone, the so it's more it's more comfortable now, right? That Trump's yeah, gone. But but the originations of the lab leak theory actually still come from the State Department. Like this was still a deliberate effort by the Trump administration to shift blame away and cast out and shift blame away from the actions or rather the inaction at the time that the American government was taking, back to like how this was a you know Chinese disease somehow in origin. Um, so, I mean, this was literally what, uh, Mike Pompeo was going off and, and uh, going off about and uh, Donald Trump was going off about at the time. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, no, there's, guys, no, there's no, we don't, definitely don't disagree that there were a lot of bad actors who did not want to take accountability for the complete and utter, like despicable failure of the U S response. But 
you know, I think it's, I think that there's two important pieces. Number one, just like we should know how the fuck this thing started. And by the way, that type of research, we already know that it is very common for viruses to escape the lab, whether it did in this case or not. So this research we know is very dangerous and it's being, you know, funded uh, in large amounts around the world. So that piece is like really important just from not having the next pandemic. But I also think the fact that it was like, that you had bad actors saying X, so we're just gonna assume Y, is one of the reasons why you've had the media get played on a lot of these type of, type of stories. You guys mind if yeah, I jump I in mean, real quick? Yeah, go ahead, yeah, Pat. Go ahead. Okay, so there's a bunch of things to say. Um, first of all, I feel like this needs to be said because this is the part that's left out in like all conversations on this, but China didn't do it on purpose, even if there was a lab, lab leak. Yeah. And like, unfortunately, yeah, we all agree with that. I know you guys agree to that. But unfortunately, most people who hear these conversations, when they hear the lab leak, they think it was like on purpose and China wanted Absolutely. to like poison the world or something. And that's why it's really important to say that they didn't do it on purpose, even if lab leak is true. The other point is both things can be true that Trump and Pompeo and all these this gaggle of idiots they were trying to cover for the fact that they fucking responded horribly to COVID. And so they'd point the finger in any direction they possibly could. And it's a very easy thing to be like, China, lab leak, them, bad, 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 bad. So they used it as an excuse. But then it also can be the case that it probably is true that it came from that lab. I mean, it's weird that you have a, a lab to study bat coronaviruses and then you get a bat coronavirus that like, or, you know, gets around the entire world. So I think that that's the most likely scenario. And then the final point I want to make is the issue now is that it's so politicized. So mm -hmm. when you say something about this, people just assume like a whole wagon of assumptions go along with what you're saying. So right. like on the left, if you bring up the lab leak theory, people think that you want to use that towards it for a new cold war. And you want to use this to like ramp up yeah. tensions with China. And to be fair to the left, that is how it's going to fucking be used by the State Department and by people with power. Um, but again, the unfortunate thing is it could be factually correct. And also we shouldn't use it for fuel for a new Cold War. And like on the right, as I already sort of alluded to, people will hang on to lab leak theory and they'll do it specifically because they want to blame the Chinese, deflect blame away from Trump and escalate. And so what we need to do is separate out the empirical question from what happened from the political assumptions that go along with it. Because in my opinion, you the political assumptions are just dumb and wrong and shouldn't be brought along with the conversation on what empirically happened. But yeah. unfortunately, only people like us can have the conversation about what empirically happened without the assumptions because people read so much into it when you talk about it. And finally, fi last thing I'll say is I think, Crystal, you're right about Sagar that his intentionality isn't like China bad, China bad, China bad, and like feeding some Cold War paranoia. But his obsession is really fucking weird, and it does sort of lead to that, whether or not he thinks it does. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as like having a conversation of the origins of the league, obviously, like I'm fully in support of like trying to figure out how this uh, virus uh, happened uh, so that we can, uh, you know, maybe beef up uh, BSL-4 lab security so, like, that this doesn't happen again. But as far as, like, America-funded, you know, gain-of-function research in China, like, that that still lends itself to the same argument that you are making originally. Like, this is not a nefarious, like, secret thing. Like, of course that Anthony Fauci uh, 
as uh, as as someone a, a, in the American government is going to offer grants to virology institutes all around the world um, uh, on on uh, even gain of function research and and research to figure out how these pathogens uh, work and to even um, you know eliminate uh, new problems that may uh, new complications that may arise like I. I'm never going to be anti-scientific research. Like I, I don't, mm. I don't think that we should like shut down even uh, gain-of-function researchers, uh, re research all around the world. I mean, I understand that it's, I understand it's dangerous, but ultimately, I feel like, uh, I ultimately feel like it's, a, it's still very helpful uh, in, in uh, even immediately finding a, a vaccine or, um, or. Uh, immediately tackling uh, uh, deadly diseases in the future and uh, develop a better understanding of like how viruses mutate for the future. So I. Like, so you feel like even if the coronavirus pandemic did start because of gain of function research that escaped the lab, um, you still think that this research net is a benefit versus I think a that danger? This, not this specific research, but like gain of function research in general. Yeah, I, I do. And I, I'll admit that I'm not like super well read on uh, on gain of function research in general. I just I have a broad understanding of it, much like many people in the media. And I still choose to side with uh, I still choose to side with the the scientific community, even though it is like the ethics of gain of function research is still something that people discuss. I still am a believer that um, um, you know uh, this sort of research is still uh, important. Well, and, and I'm also well, not a scientist, but I will but, say that the the it's not like there's one scientific consensus around this. So there's yeah. a dispute in the scientific community whether this research is worth doing, right? Whether it's net benefit and helps us to understand how viruses can evolve and the ways. I mean, what gain of function means is making the virus more dangerous to see what happens, right? Um, so there is a, a divide within the scientific community. It's not like there's one consensus where the scientists are saying, yay, gain of function, and like Trump is saying no, right? I mean, guys, <laughs> it would be a scientific experiment to try to clone a human being. Does that mean we should be like, hey, science Let's says it's it. okay, so go ahead and try it. I feel like yeah. the ethics questions always come second to like the question of science and we can do it that's right i mean it was the same the fucking nuclear weapon it came that was like a scientific thing they were like what happens if we split the atom or whatever the fuck and then they created nuclear bombs i mean i think now in retrospect we can look at that and say probably a fucking that's mistake probably not great yeah probably don't do that <clears throat> yeah i um what well the the caveat that i was gonna have for that gain of function, re function research is like to obviously ensure its safety above all because uh, leaks as you pointed out do happen and in can it can be devastating uh ironically similar to nukes uh, uh which america notoriously is not very careful with uh, and has used in the past we're the uh, only ones who used it we're the only ones yeah. gain of function research can be uh, devastating if the bio uh if the lab leak uh theory is true and it's still and it's also gain of function research uh, that that uh, mutated or, or I guess like increased the 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 uh, like virality or I guess like the transmissibility or host range of this virus. Um, I I still think that like the areas of improvement are not necessarily to just like shut down gain of function research altogether, but instead to uh, in improve the safety measures 
uh, across the, the board uh, throughout the entire, uh, you know, throughout yeah. the entire uh, scientific, like uh, virology institutes and scientific yeah. community. And Certainly. I mean, it. one of the things that I learned it, about this is that it actually is very common for these viruses to escape the lab. Um, and uh, and so it's not just like China didn't do a good job here and they have shitty labs or whatever. It's actually very, very common that the viruses in this gain of function research escape the lab. And the way that it's funny because Fauci and also that's, the, the that's the same for every virus, right? Like it's not just gain of function research viruses that right. But the, pro the thing with gain of function research, though, is that you're intentionally trying to make a virus more dangerous. So that's why when those viruses escape the lab, it's an inherently more dangerous situation because that's what that's what it's all about. And Fauci and um, the doctor, I think she is her name, who runs that lab, they both say, like, we weren't doing gain of function research there. We were uh, experimenting with how to get the virus to move from species to species, which uh, seems uh, also kind of like a dangerous thing to be doing. So anyway, a lot of questions here that all three of us non-scientists are probably not in the best position to thoroughly yeah. resolve. <laughs> I'm an expert. I don't know what I don't you're think, talking like, about. Just to work on bats, like for the record, I just I think that like look, there's a reason why bats are uh, the the common animal in a lot of these uh, in a, a lot of how these diseases spread, whether it be Ebola or, or uh, any number of different uh, diseases, and that's because they have a really fucked up metabolism, and uh, they're they're perfect, um, they're they're perfect Petri for dishes. transmitting this and like helping this disease jump or helping this mutate and jump from one animal to another um which is precisely why i understand why um there would be a research on that um, i think that's a very that i think that's a very problematic anti-bat view that you hold there hassan <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm, I'm not gonna yeah, stand for Batman it man and and uh <laughs> you know I, I do think that we should continue researching uh bats uh in that respect especially but um the reason why I say this is because, like, this is a relatively new area, still, and um, I think that there could be there you yeah, go. transhumanist. Uh, yeah, I'm. I guess I'm a bit of like a like a sci-fi nerd and transhumanist, but like, I don't I don't believe that uh, we should be uh, limiting science unless it's like a serious, significant ethical concern. Um, mm. And uh, for genetic modification does not meet that criteria for me of like ethical concern. But that's my personal opinion on it. I, I would love to limit I just don't want another fucking pandemic. That's all. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Hassan, you were telling us that you started a new podcast. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a new podcast called Fear and Malding. Uh, and uh, my co-host is Will Neff, uh, who just recently announced that he's uh, going to be host on the new tv project g4 and uh we talk about a variety of different things we talk about politics uh he's not super political so uh we just like try to keep it light you know i'll just like describe certain things to him from time to time and then it's more so like comedy focused just two guys having fun shooting the shit looking at uh the mania of of the american news cycle for the most part and, and is just that laugh. just in all the normal podcast places people can find that Yes, you can find that everywhere. Uh, Audible, Spotify, Apple, wherever you can get your podcast. And everybody check out Hassan on Twitch. Everybody check him out on Twitter, all the normal places. He uh, He's gigantic now. It's kind of amazing how much, like, you know, you exploded in a way few people have, man. 
Thank you. I mean, I, I just because I, I know life, it, you know, I don't have anything else going on. That's all I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm that is Crystal life. Crystal and I, on the other hand, have so much else going on. Well, I have three That's kids. That's a joke. So I we do have, have a lot on. of going on. <laughs> um, Hassan, thank you so much. It's so great to finally get to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, guys. All right. That's Hassan Piker. Um, really interesting guy. I've enjoyed seeing his evolution over the years because it is true. The thing I brought up to him, there was a time when it was like, you are Jenk's nephew. That's it. Like you would just you would be nothing without Jenk. You're you know, you're it's nepotism. You've been gifted a spot at TYT. And then um like I said to him, when he left the Young Turks and started doing his Twitch thing full time, that is when he blew up. So really in like the biggest and best and clearest way you could possibly do it, he has now made it so that he's his own man. And like respect for that because it's tough. I mean, when you're labeled up front as the nepotism guy, you know, just like you're the nephew it's tough. And, the, you know, I, I like I said, I could relate to him a little bit because when I first started, I was a ripoff stylistically of Bill Maher and Jank and some others. And like, you know, it sticks with you when people are like, I see what you're fucking doing. You're just copying somebody. That's all you're doing. It's nothing. And then eventually you have to grow and become your own person and like try to make it as your own person. And, um, you know, it's vicious out there sometimes online. And he found a way to, to grind through it. And listen to when you're doing 10 to 12 hour streams like every day. Daddy, you're working your ass off. I get it. It's a stream. It's not the same as you could be in a coal mine somewhere. That's a lot harder. Don't get me wrong. But, like, that's a lot to do. And he's stuck to it. And, you know, he's really blown up in a way that's amazing to see. Cool to see um, anytime someone finds, like, their thing. You know, like, the format on TYT, it wasn't working when he felt restricted and he had all these ideas and he felt like he wasn't able to execute them. And then uh, there's something profound about the fact that he decided to go over to Twitch because he actually felt like that would be a good place for him to practice, to get better, because he didn't feel like he was comfortable speaking off the cuff, that he wasn't that good at articulating his arguments. He wanted more practice. And going over there in a place that he felt was sort of like lower stakes and I'm just going to workshop things here and then I can take them on to the main stage over at TYT or on YouTube or whatever, that turned into the, you know, the thing that he was like uniquely meant to do. And now it's all off the cuff. And that's what he's that's what he's known for is just like being totally in the flow and totally in the moment and reacting. So I think that's actually... It's very interesting to me that that was the way that it came about. It wasn't so much an intentional move like, I'm going to try this thing now, but it was actually, I see this need in my own personal development. I'm going to workshop it over here. And maybe because he felt that it was low stakes and it was just sort of like relaxed and easy and I'm just practicing that he ended up having such an affinity for it and people responded so much to him. What do you make of that format? The um, the Twitch format versus what we do most of the time. The Twitch format being 100% live. You're basically yeah. learning along with the audience. Like you could pull up an article and start reading it, and your audience is reading along with you, and so you're reacting in real time. What do you make of that versus how we do it? I find it very intimidating, and do I you? also I do. Um, but I and I also well because I'm you know I'm the the straight A student, the perfectionist, all of that. 
so the idea of just going in and like winging it and going through the the moat like going with the flow and wherever the conversation leads for 12 hours like yeah I find that extremely intimidating I also it also makes me feel kind of old because I don't really understand it you know what I mean I'm like I see in all the comments scrolling whatever I'm like this is not my world um but the one thing I do relate to is the one thing I miss about the time that I was at MSNBC is doing breaking news so when a big story broke and it's I don't think it's exactly the same, but it's that similar like you're being fed information into your ear. You're looking on your computer. It's all happening right then and there. Everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. You're trying you're getting in a guess. You're trying to figure out your questions, all of that stuff. Like um, actually really, even though it it was a huge like adrenaline hit and it, that was a little scary and intimidating, especially at first. I also really enjoyed um, doing that kind of work where the stakes are relatively high and you're just figuring it out in the flow as you go. So I can kind of relate to the appeal of it in that way. Yeah, you think it's intimidating, but when you're actually doing it, it's not because I do live streams a decent amount. And um, what happens is you're even more in the moment when you're doing it live. Like you and I right now, we're in the moment, but if we were to be doing this live with comments and re reacting to the comments, you're actually even more in the moment. And you'd be surprised. Some people have the ability to uh, just sort of snap into place and and kind of tune in to a certain frequency for the live things. And it um, it's, makes it fun. And it makes it so... I always feel like I I'm even less likely to mess up when it's live and you're engaging in real time. You know what I mean? Like... I think there's even more room to mess up when you're you're pre-recording something. You know, there were times where I uh, I pre-recorded uh, YouTube videos as a matter of procedure. I didn't do it that much, but mo because most of the time I'm live in one sense or another. And like that's when my perfectionism comes out more. That's when I'm like, ah, I messed that up. Let me start that over. But when you're live, you're forced. Like this is it. There's no second takes. There's no nothing. You better fucking nail it. And then. It makes it so that you do. You sort of tap into this mindset where you do. And the other thing is, for him in particular, streaming that many hours, even though for what you and I do, there's more preparation involved, like there's probably more reading of articles and more watching of clips and stuff before you go on air, he ultimately is doing more work. Because when you're 10 to 12 hours, you're talking, that's insane. So much. That is so much. No, I... Even just the difference between, you know, some cable news shows are pre-taped and some are live. And even in the, they call them, you know, live to tape, which means you're doing it, you're supposed to be doing it as if it's live. But even just somewhere in the back of your head, knowing that it's not technically live right now, it does right. make a difference in the energy of it and the way that it feels while you're doing it. We did it rising. We would do um, live debate coverage and we did live like election night coverage. And yeah, it's exhausting and it's also exhilarating. And so I mm. do actually really enjoy it. It's the kind of thing that I just find it. I mean, it's a little bit more like, you know, the high wire act, like it's it's a little higher risk, but it's also, I think, sort of higher reward because you do get that like, I don't know, it's there's a there's a rush to it for sure that you don't get in pre-recorded things, I guess I would say. So I do get the appeal of it that way. What did you make of the Sagar criticism? 
Um, so I think part of it is somewhat fair, and I think part of it's unfair because I think Sagar gets lumped in by people who haven't watched the show a lot. I think he gets lumped in with like Trump apologists, and so the the idea that he is one of these people who's covering lab leak or cares about it because he wants to distract from Trump's failures. Like, I, that's just not true at all. And he was extremely critical of Trump's handling of coronavirus, like didn't hesitate to talk about that. And, and also tries to make it clear that like this was not a bioweapon and, you know, it was not like intentionally released by China. And makes it frequently clear that there are a lot of right-wing actors that are using this for nefarious purposes and that he doesn't want any part of that. Um, but I think that, I think the point about, you know, his like interest in China, I can understand definitely why that's read as like, oh, you want a new cold war, you're, you're hawkish, or why are you focusing so much on this country? So I think that part, that part I understand the critique of, but I also disagree. I disagree with um, the the fact, the idea too, that if the pandemic did start from gain and function research, that we should just keep doing that research and not any ask any questions about that. Because, in my view, actually, based on what I've read. Um, we already know enough about the risk of gain and function research to be pumping the brakes at the very least. And instead, we're going the exact opposite direction. So the scientific community is, you know, certainly better than Trump world, but they have their own interest and ambitions and blind spots as well. So if their career is dependent on getting these research grants and pursuing this type of research, they're going to be biased in favor of continuing it, whether or not it's actually the right thing to do. So I don't buy into the notion that like just defer to the scientists we can't ask any questions of them i don't think that's the right way to look at this at all well yeah and ethics in science is its own thing like it's a whole field yeah. a whole i like you debate whether or not something is moral or ethical or reasonable to even study and there's plenty of examples of like unethical experiments for example like the stanford prison experiment is viewed as like or the zimbardo experiment like that's it's viewed as like oh, that was unethical and should have never been done in the same way that, you know, you need people's consent and you shouldn't study certain things. You d shouldn't try to just clone a human. For, you know what I mean? Like there's it, it's its own philosophical field. And to, to think like, well, if the scientists want to do it, let's just do it. No, I, that that makes no sense. Like because you can with, with no guidelines, no rules, no, you know, things that are, you know, viewed as OK and not OK. It's chaos. They'll study everything and they're like i said the nuclear weapon came about because we were messing around you know and studying and science and oh look oh look what we could do we could destroy the entire planet isn't this wonderful so i agree with you on that and i i i would get rid of gain of function research no doubt about it um i guess the but, other thing i would just say on the Sagar piece is this is always very uncomfortable for me like he should be here defending himself i know i wanted to give you a chance you know, to respond so, though because you could monologue here as opposed to having somebody well and the thing is, like, I don't want to monologue on because he, you know, has his perspective and I don't always agree with his perspective. That's part of what I think makes our show interesting is like we're not ideologically the same and we do have points of disagreement. So I always just feel put in a very weird place where, like, 
I want to defend him because he's my partner and I know that he operates in good faith and I know where he's coming from. But I also like don't agree with certain areas. So it's just like I think it's sort of unfair both to Sagar and to me to, you know, for, to have that whole conversation and him not be here to articulate what he actually thinks on the issue. You know, I well, first of all, I totally understand what you're saying. But in order to discuss the topic of of the lab leak and we wanted to ask Hassan about that because he's yeah. criticized you guys on that. We had to right. bring it up. There was no way around of it. Of course, like, yeah. yeah. Well, and, I mean, I'm the one that brought it up, right? That's so, what I'm saying, right. Yeah. Right, so. and I think maybe I didn't actually watch what he said originally about us, and I don't know if he only criticized Sagar or criticized me as well. So, you know, maybe I should have just not asked about it, but it feels like when someone, and he just said, if he had said it like a month or two in the past or whatever, I'd probably been more like, whatever. But it was just something he talked about this week. So I sort of felt like it'd be weird if I didn't bring it up, you know? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a totally reasonable conversation to have. It's an interesting issue. But as you correctly pointed out, you're in a weird position simply because your show includes Sagar. So if he's criticizing you guys and, and some or most of the criticism is directed at Sagar, it's like you want to get into what the disagreement is and you can't get into the disagreement without him being like, well, I disagreed more with Sagar than I did with you. You know what I mean? So it's like he inevitably was going to come up if we were going to talk about the issue and we had no choice but to really talk about the issue. So there's no way around that. Um but in terms of, it, from my perspective, I'm more comfortable talking about him. I don't do a show with him, so I'm more comfortable talking about him. I know him. He's a nice guy. Not in a million years would I question his sincerity. I think he's incredibly good faith. I think he's completely sincere in every respect. And there's nothing I would say here that I wouldn't say to his face as well. So I think there is a difference between pre-January 6th Sagar and post-January 6th Sagar. I think that, and he says this himself. He said it, you know, when we helped launch Breaking Points on Crystal Kyle and Friends. He was like, yeah, there was a time where maybe I felt... Like, I have to give the populist right position. And then when I saw the Stop the Steal stuff, I was like, oh, these people are idiots, and I want nothing to do with them. So there has been, like, an evolution and a growth in Sagar. And when people criticize him, sometimes I don't think they realize that, like, he's changed a lot over the years. And so you can blatantly well, the criticize thing, him. The Tucker thing's a perfect example. I mean, Tucker gave him his first job, Right. And I think he's felt a lot of loyalty to him, like just on a human level over that, which is, you know, a, a, an understandable kind of a thing. But there, too, there's been a, a very different sort of tone and rhetoric and just unvarnished opinion um, in recent months. And I think you're right that he would I don't think he'd track it to January 6th. I think he'd track it to stop the steal in general um, because he knew right away that that That's was going to be. I don't know. I don't know yeah. why I said January 6th. Well, I, I mean, they're they're of a piece, right? I mean, that so, yeah, leads similar. to January 6th, whatever. But um, Stop the Steal was really the breaking point breaking point for him <laughs> where it's like, I no longer need to feel like I need to cover for any of these people at all. Um, and so I do feel like some of the criticism of him um, doesn't reflect that growth. And I think also the other thing that bothers me is just like we talked about, there's this obsession on the left with like, let me find everything Joe Rogan says that I hate and let me focus only on that. That's the other thing that is done with us. So he can agree with us on like 80% of stuff, 
no one talks about that. And then it's like, oh, but on this one thing, I didn't like what you said, or you didn't criticize this person enough or that person or whatever. And there's more of an emphasis and a fixation on those points than on like, oh, wow, we've got, you know, all these areas on healthcare and economics and various things that we actually do have common ground on. Yeah. But to be fair, that is your show with him. You guys are most of the time talking about the stuff you agree with each other on. So, like, there is a very prominent, very popular space where you're doing exactly that. So yeah, it's not, no, I don't think true. it's weird when people are like, hey, this thing he said here about Labley. Because, listen, from my perspective, yes, they're, like when he talks about China, like, every day, I'm like, I don't know why you're talking about China every day. And yeah. e even from the perspective of like, oh, it's just about jobs and outsourcing, I talk about it all the time too. But I talk about it from the perspective of the shit we can control in the United States, which is we should stop outsourcing our fucking jobs. You right. know, it's, not, it's not a story about China as much as it's a story about corporations have bought the government and they wanted to outsource all the fucking jobs. Yes. You know what I mean? So yes. listen, there, there are criticisms of him that I have. There's criticisms that others have. But overall, yes, you're correct. In the same spirit of the Joe Rogan um, monologue that you did, the breaking points that you gave, where you're like, I don't understand why people don't focus on the areas where he says all the reasonable shit. Yeah, I think that's fair about Sagar too. He gets, he does get a bad rap on the left in many respects when really as far as like somebody who you can work with goes, he's the best you're ever going to get for somebody who nominally is ideologically not in alignment with you. I know he now rejects like populist right label. And he said, he's like, what do you say? Radical centrist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. Like never say those words again. But <laughs> as far as somebody who ideologically is not in alignment with us. Yes. If he's going to agree on unions and minimum wage and getting money out of politics or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, that's as good as it can ever get, you know? Yeah. And it does create that, pathway for some people who don't agree with us on those issues who do consider themselves on the right to maybe come over and have a different perspective on those issues or to not just like think that socialists are uniquely evil threat to the world or whatever so um anyway so yeah i always find again i brought it up so it's my own fault but i felt like it was something that we should agree but i do find those conversations when he's not here to articulate his own perspective, very uncomfortable because, again, there are areas where I also have critiques and disagreements with Sagar, but then I feel like I'm put in the position of you need to defend him in these areas. So anyway, that was my feeling about all of well, that. Well, it, 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 to sum it up as simply as possible, you 100% defend his sincerity, his honesty, how good faith he is, yes. and him as a person. In terms of the substance of what he says, you have to go case by case. And say, That's absolutely. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's on these areas that. we agree, on these areas we don't yeah. agree. But is he operating in good faith? Is he like some, you know, I mean, the the really ridiculous criticism is always that like a fascist. He's basically Hitler, all this. I mean, oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. That's so just incredibly silly. Idiot. Right. If, if so that, incredibly one of the silly. Populist, right? Pfft. Nazis were populist, right? And this guy's populist, right? He's fucking Nazis like Goebbels ridiculous. or Himmler. Hitler. Uh, you have a six IQ. Please right. shut the fuck up. Yes, um, anyway, exactly. So, anyway, uh, but I very much enjoyed talking to Hassan, um, who I think is a really interesting guy, really interesting thinker, and obviously has this platform that is extraordinarily powerful and that he is using in a very intentional way, which I think was interesting to hear from him on, too. Yeah, and um, he is, I'm going to dub him the king of the Zoomers, because I yeah. do believe that as young as my audience is and as young as your audience is, it's mostly millennial. And I think yes. he probably, 
fans also attracted because Twitch probably in general too is on average a younger platform as well. I think think so. I would think so. Yeah. True. I have no facts to back it up. I'm talking out of my asshole, but (laughs) that's secular talk summed up and Crystal Kyle and friends summed up in one talking out of my asshole, but probably correct. (laughs) That's my life. My life summed up on a bumper stick. Yeah. So guys, um, just to let everybody know if this is your first time listening to the show or not, um, Crystal and I have decided we're taking zero dollars and zero cents from all advertisers. I mean, we turn the ads off even on YouTube. We turn the ads off um, when it comes to podcasts. If we wanted to, we could read ads and people would throw money at our faces at a thousand miles an hour for us to read ads because, you know, in terms of the numbers, the podcast does pretty well. We decided we wanted to build something a little more pure. We decided we wanted to build something totally disconnected from all that nonsense. And so basically the way that we fund this show is through um, memberships effectively. It's really a tip. So basically you pay $5 a month and then you get the video of the interviews and you get it a day early. So the podcast will always be totally free for everybody in audio format. That comes out on all the podcast platforms, but either way, sign up on Substack, either for the $5 for the video or for free to get the um, podcast delivered uh, via email the second it drops. But um, if you support the show, please consider paying the $5 a month and getting the video a day early. Again, if not, it's okay. You can get it for free a day later. So you get it a day later in an audio format for free. But um, we'd really appreciate it if, if you helped out because, you know, we when we did this, we were like, let's make something a little more pure. And we knew going into it, we're only going to make like 25% or 50% of what we could make on the podcast. But it was never really about the money. And we wanted to try out something that, you know, I think honestly, Crystal, and I'm not trying to speak ill of anybody else in our field. I think we're the only people who are doing it where we mm. literally take no other money from any other outlet. Even my show, Secular Talk, I've never had a conversation with an advertiser ever. I'm very proud right. of that. But right. I still allow the YouTube ads to run because I don't right. talk to any advertisers that way. There's a buffer. But this, I've got, we've gone even further where we literally turned off the YouTube ads. Even for our, our teaser clips, we turn off the YouTube ads. If anything yep. happens to run, that's just Google putting it there so that they make the money from it. So you know, we wanted to build some more pure. So if you guys, uh, you know, support that and support the show and like the interviews, uh, please help us out on Substack $5 a month. And I don't think you'll regret it. We have had a lot of wonderful guests and it's much better to see the lovely crystal balls that have just hear her. Stop. You always say that, but I do appreciate it. Um, and I know a lot of your fans want to see your beautiful face as well. Um, for you guys who have, uh, subscribed, by the way, you can sign up on Substack and not pay the $5 a month. And then you just, you get all the newsletters and you can, you get it in your inbox there in terms of the audio version on Saturday. It's something we always fail to mention that you can sign up on Substack and then choose whether you're going to pay the five bucks a month or not and get the video version. Um, for those of you who have subscribed, I just want you to know how much we appreciate you. Like it really, really does mean a lot. And we know for a lot of you, like money may be tight. There's a lot of different um, content out there. There's a lot of different Patreons, a lot of different sub stacks, all that. So we're extremely grateful to you guys. Appreciate you. Yeah. And thank you to uh, Piper for the phenomenal newsletter. She does a great job behind the Mm. scenes and people uh, might not know about how much work goes into it and how much she does for us. So big thank you to Piper as well. Indeed. Um, All right, guys, we love you and we'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. 